What was he going to do? Beat I, you up? I actually think it is the Cork accent. I'm not going to lie. I, like, there is something about the Cork accent that makes it the most intimidating accent, accent of the 32 counties in Ireland, I think. OTB AM. Live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Half past seven Friday morning. You're watching OTB AM. Very good morning to you. And welcome along to the show. Ashley, how are you doing? Good day, Adrian. How are you? Good, Colm. How are you? Lads, how are we? How's the Mandarin good? The weekend is nearly there. <laughs> Choking over there. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. You finished eating it or do you, want to, you need a couple of minutes? Oh, there's nothing wrong. Um, how are you? Are you excited for the weekend? Buzzing, yeah. What's happening? Remember this time last <laughs> week, Adrian, you were asking me, what are you doing tonight? And I said, uh, it's a personal question. I said, I'm going to watch some uh, sport on TV, yep. England against Italy, and I'm going to watch the tennis. And then you said, oh, that limp end to the Roger Federer career. Yeah. Why, would, why would you bother watching that? That's the, uh, then like, you got added on Twitter because Colum, it was so good. Not even one minute in and you're off. It's, and not even one minute in and he's making up stories. Like, totally miserable. No, no, that's what you said. Happened. That's what you said. Go ahead, yeah. caller. Yeah. What's, what are you and saying? Then, and then what happened is late on Friday night, you're getting added on Twitter. Mm. Being like, Adrian, you're missing out on history here. So Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal played doubles. Federer's last ever match against Jack Sock and Francis Tiafo. They have match point on Federer's serve. And then 60 seconds later, they've lost the match. But that's only the starter. The main course is afterwards. They all embrace. It's all right, Ashley. We'll, we'll move on from tennis in a second. Uh, Rafael Nadal, no one saw coming. No one saw no coming. One saw Floods it. of tears. Yeah, I've seen all Floods of the pictures. No one saw it, full stop. Yeah. Millions, millions of views by Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, but that's the thing. Adrian like, you miss out on history. You don't miss out on history anymore because it actually doesn't really matter what happens at any point. You'll pick it up on TikTok. You'll You're pick on. it up on Twitter. It's absolutely fine. You never uh, miss well, history. No, according to Sky Sports, it's only live once. So, you know, you do miss the event as it happens. Like, And it's not the same when you're looking back on it. But anyway, Adrian was getting added on Twitter. I wish I wish you had taken seriously so that you could have watched it and it could have been a thing that we'd have done together but you just laughed it off it was a great moment very happy Friday and a limp to the end of an unbelievable career so um, he was always going to be I mean if yeah he was teary anyway um, we have lots coming up in the show today that isn't really tennis but I know you were very very keen that we uh, we get that mention in at the very top of the show we're going to be um talking to Martin Lipton a little bit later on we're going to talk about obviously uh, the North London Derby with him we're going to talk to what are you pointing at? Do the coming huh? yeah, the coming up do the coming up yeah. right that's what I'm in the middle of but they want to come I up actually need to sit in the middle Martin Lipton <laughs> North do. London Derby Daniel Harris because right. the Manchester Derby is upcoming as well so he'll be along in about 20 minutes time or thereabouts uh, we're going to talk to Sean O'Neill who's senior writer with The Times another grisly story emerging from Qatar ahead of the World Cup we'll talk to him about that Alan Quinlan was going to join us to talk all things rugby including I see at the back page of the Irish Daily Mail this morning John Cooney might be about to declare for Scotland um, so we'll see I'm not sure if uh, what's in that and also other interesting developments needless to say off the pitch in rugby this week as well get uh, uh, Alan's thoughts on that uh, Ashling meets Ashling McCarthy uh, that is coming your way a bit later on and Shane has been chatting to Richie Fitzgerald the pro surfer so that's all on the way of the next little while one of the things we'll talk to uh, Daniel Harris about is an article that he's written in the Guardian this week about the strange charisma of Eric Ten Hag and I have to say I never would have put charisma and Eric Ten Hag in the same sentence but we'll get into him about that maybe a little bit later on it did start uh, me thinking about who are the most charismatic Irish sporting managers of all time and we've each come to the table with a list of uh, a short list of three have we? <laughs> we, yes, have. we didn't have much notice can we say ah that? come on now yeah. nine o'clock last night was plenty of notice roughly. yeah I, ha- I have about I have two and then I have some 
honourable mentions. Yeah. I, I must say, compelling attractiveness or charm that can inspire devotion in others is the uh, book definition of charisma. Yeah, I did. I, I looked it up also because I, I, I wondered, what do I think, what does charismatic mean? And for me, I think in a manager, it's someone who definitely, when they talk, you listen, you know, in that dressing room, you command mm. the dressing room. And yeah, something that sort of fascinates you about that person. So I was trying to think, so who's fascinated me over the years as a manager? Who did I always want to know more about? Mm. Um, and I think there'd be no surprise that my first one is Sean Boylan. I knew he was going to be there. He's <laughs> an absolute banker. But yes, I'm from me then. Obviously, it's massive for me being from me, like growing up watching him and obviously the success that he had. But I think even just across the, the country, I think mm. everybody has this thing about Sean Boylan that he was so fascinating in, I suppose, 23 years in charge of Mead, but also the way he went about things. He had these mad training techniques, you know, they talked about the, the Hill of Tower and the techniques that they had. And he was beyond his years and beyond his time of the, you know, the, the remedies that he had with obviously his his herbal business as well. So, you know, there was always a big fascination. Training next to the cows out in Dalgany, Par- Dalgany Park and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is it. And, and even now, actually, like all those years later when he's at shows for us, he's unbelievably charismatic. Big time. Like even like his daughter would play for Dunboyne and we'd play against them every now and again. Like mm. I remember last year we played them in a challenge game and he was on the sideline and some of the girls would be very young on the team and they wouldn't have known Sean Boylan in his time with Meath and you know they were all walking by everyone's like hi Sean you know everybody's walking by like nervous by him and these girls I don't even know if they were born when you know Meath won the All-Ireland so you know he has this aura about him and he still does to this day and we've seen him in with Down last last year the the 20s you know um, and even in a, another county you know he brings that he brings that energy and it's special and I think only a certain amount people have it and yeah he's definitely he's my, in the bank. my number one he's in the bank who else have you got yes then my next one I picked Mick O'Dwyer and yeah I just think that yeah you're shaking your head you haven't too no no okay no, okay no, no. Um, yeah just for, for obviously what he done with Kerry that was before my time but I think my first memories of him was probably I remember I'm on the sideline for Leash against Mead in Crow Park and I, I just always remember that and I remember going away that day and I was young at the time but I remember looking up and Mick O'Dwyer and then obviously hearing more about him what he done at Kerry and um, then Kildare as well and like if you actually go back and look at what he done at these at these mm. teams it was incredible like for teams that had never really achieved much to bring them to, to Leinster titles you know it was something else but again he had a way about him um, I just I watched some of the, the documentaries on him and yeah he, he definitely commanded a room and mm. yeah when he spoke you listened and I think that's that's so important with a manager to be able to have that but also to have the, the man management as well but also have that fun side and I think we always got that with, with Mick O'Dwyer. There was always that fun element to it as well. So, yeah, he is... So two GA managers where we're headed so far, I actually. I see a trend here. It was tough. It Who was else? tough. Who else have we got? Do I have to go on my third yeah, already? Go on, right. Yeah. Well, maybe my... <laughs> <laughs> let me have, let me have a look. <laughs> it's tough because we said best uh, like of all time in Irish managers. So there's three or four you could pick. But then again, I'm like, geez, do I want to put them into the ranks of best of all time? Um, but yeah, I think the next one, it was between Mickey Hart, another GAA manager I know, and Eamon Ryan. I thought Eamon Ryan uh, from Cork, like mm. incredible what he's it's doing. It's a very and, good show, actually, yeah. Yeah, and I think he is what you think charismatic is like. And he was such a fodder figure to all those girls in Cork for, for so long. And they speak about him like that. Like when you hear them talk about that man, it's like... Mm. 
yeah, he, he was a second dad to all of them. And yeah, what he achieved was amazing. A 10 All-Irelands in 11 years, you know, um, incredible stuff. So him and Mickey Hart, obviously we, we know Mickey Hart. And I think, yeah, he just had that aura about him as well. And he'd been there for so long with Tyrone and what they achieved. So um, yeah, there's only a certain amount of people that you've really picked yeah. for, for this type of thing. Like it's, you have you, to have a certain energy about you. And did you consider Martin O'Neill because of his success in Celtic? Yes, but I didn't know for his success in Ireland. I didn't know if it. No, you could, no, you could no, be yeah, charismatic. It's, 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 it's tangible, like you as said, Irish managers. Yeah. So Irish. He, oh, sorry, and he could have been outside. Yeah, oh, yeah, I thought yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was up Ireland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, I don't know. Well, I got the assignment wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might have got it wrong, but you got it way better than this guy. <laughs> oh, I understood the assignment from what you said to me originally. But did you? I thought he had to be a manager of Ireland. I know he has been, but I didn't think his time. Yeah. Would that consider now? That. Would, would you include him in a three, or would he still not make the three, Martin O'Neill? Your oh three yeah, for what he did. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely. He'd be in his number. And who, who would you take out? I know That's I'm putting you on the spot, but who? Well, I had honourable mentions for Eamon Ryan and Mickey Hart. I thought they okay. deserved to mention, but Ryan I probably would have put left. Yeah, that's yeah. a great so, choice. Yeah, 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 yeah. I probably would definitely have Martin O'Neill if I had known yeah. the assignment properly. That's okay, actually. That's all right. Don't be too hard on yourself. No, Adrian, look, you came up with the assignment, and I think no, no, no. I think it's only, I think it's only fair. I think it's only fair that you go second. I'm very happy. I think it's only fair. I will say that like there are so many tips to cap and. You hit on a point there about the documentary in relation to Mick, uh, Mikko. I do think actually public access to some of these people was definitely a factor. And two of the ones that I have, at least two of the ones that I have, had documentaries made about them. I've kind of a list of four, to be honest, but I'm sort of not really sure who I should leave off. But Paddy O'Shea, as uh, we mentioned in the office beforehand, and almost everybody in the office went, you've Paddy O'Shea, haven't you? Paddy O'Shea. Like, I mean, when it comes to charisma... Like, yeah. success, like success is another sort of factor that I think should be in here because I think if you remove the success aspect suddenly the uh, breadth of selections becomes a monster mm-hmm. so I think you do probably have to like arbitrarily throw success into the mix there as well and Paddy definitely had that amazing Oh, unbelievable. Character. I've been named to the Potty O'Shea tournament so many yeah, times yeah. and the stories, like there's different stories ah, each listen, and every year because he was that type yeah. of person. Even to tell a story, he was brilliant at telling stories as well. He, you incredible. mentioned Mick earlier. I remember it was the early 2000s when Mick was with Leash and it must have been the 2004 series of one of those where I was sat, went in to cover the press conference. It was in uh, Bank of Ireland HQ in Ballsbridge and uh, every, people, people were in a bit early. I was in a bit early and I had met Mikko. It might have been the press conference for the replay or else it was at, I'd met him at the semi-final where it gone into the... It was still in the days where he could go into the dressing room and I went in and he was there in his wife fronts and I was like, <laughs> I was like respectfully waiting for him to get dressed before I turned the microphone on for whatever reason. And uh, he went, ah, oh, no, bash away. So it was like a sort of a weird, weird conversation. But when I went in a bit early... I didn't uh, sort of strike up a conversation where he came over to me and he went, oh, you have the bag with you today or something like this. And we started chatting. So we were sat at two seats and after a few minutes, um, uh, me, Hart had come in and sat in the other seat and obviously the two lads would have known each other really yeah, well yeah, and they yeah. were chatting away. And after a few more minutes, Paddy came in and he sat in the fourth seat and there was me with a front Adrian's row. Like, look like, around <laughs> and they were mostly chatting Irish, so it was totally, uh, totally <laughs> lost to me, but it was also very cool. Brilliant. Uh, Paddy's in there. Uh, Jack uh, Charlton is in there. Big Jack is in there. I think you can't get through a list no. like this without and Big Jack being on there. Why I didn't pick him, I said it to you before. Obviously, yeah. it's before my time, but I, I said it to you. He'd yeah. have to be nearly the ah, one yeah. watching back on him. I think when it comes to charisma and like success and what he did for the country and all that stuff, he's, he's got to be on there. It's self, mm-hmm. self-explanatory. Uh, one very left-field call, I think, Roddy Collins. 
Yeah, that's oh. a great shout. Yeah. Oh, yeah. brilliant. Like, obviously, in the news a bit at the minute, sort of yeah. book has been launched, but I think when it comes to charisma, you can absolutely include him on the success front. He's the double with balls in the in the bag, so that takes the box yeah. there. And I just think it's like, if you you think about, I think about, like, who who would I like to go for a beer with? Mm. Yeah. And you know what I mean? He's, he's in that. And Ronald Agarra is my other... Um, oh, that's, that's completely blank than Raj. No, we didn't I get the, thought, the like, assignment. I would have thought Roy Keane, Ron Regarra, Ashley, come on. Roy Keane. Oh my <laughs> God. Raj, oh, he'd yeah. definitely be in my three. I have a bit of a decision to make now. Go on, it's no. funny because I would just, I, I was just thinking of Raj as the player. Go on. No, no, can, sorry, get no. the obvious one no, out no, of the No, way no, now. no. Can, I, can you just, on, um, get the obvious no, one out of the way. can you just answer me this question, please? Did you ever interview Roddy? Uh, yeah, I would have done because he would have done. He would have been on very regularly with us. Yeah, a number of years ago. Yeah, very interesting, entertain, very entertaining, very entertaining. And is like, that is that like the knuckle ride entertaining? <laughs> and is that the primary reason he's on? This is pure entertainment value, or is it is it a bit of a tip to the cap of the success? Because you mentioned with balls, oh, like, yeah, it, the balls thing doesn't exist. You can't include him in the list for example. That's what, yeah, that was what I was like, going to say. He obviously had to have something to achieve yeah. that. So um, no, that's why he's in there. I mean, who knows what he? Was, I don't know what he was like in a dressing room, but yeah. like, you can just imagine. Obviously, the documentary is another part of that. The Rod Squad is obviously there. It's on the record. It's brilliant. It's amazing. So um, yeah. That's that's where I'm going. I've loads of tips of the caps as well, but I'm not going to get into them. So, come on, what have you got? I'm going to put uh, Jack Charlton. Me myself. Yeah. I think I have to have him because if you look back and that Finding Jack documentary myself, there. Yeah. Come on. Well, I was really annoyed that you picked that. <laughs> um, but if you look back in that Finding Jack documentary, like you know, his demise is so sad. At the end, you know, did you see that documentary? And, yeah. yeah. And, you yeah. know, Paul McGrath pops up on screen and he, he recognises him momentarily and you just get a little glimpse of what he was uh, what he was like when he was Ireland manager. But it, it's it's not just a success. Like, obviously, like Euro 88, Italian 90, USA 94, brilliant. Uh, like, there's touchstones in Irish culture in general, not just sport. And look, it was kind of agricultural football sometimes and it wasn't very attractive. And by the end, it became a bit archaic when they lost to the Netherlands at Anfield in late 1995, which is his last match. But if you look back at just his great moments, like when he got appointed and he was holding court to all the print journalists and saying like, now you know that I can talk, but can I manage? And just to say something like that, and you haven't even managed the game yet, it's just brilliant. And then the other one as well, as you'll see it in reading in the years, the 1990 episode when they come back to Ireland and Dublin is absolutely jammers. And they're looking up at him like, and they've done a brilliant tournament quarterfinals, so close. And uh, he says, you know, we've trained very well. We've prepared. Mm. We uh, ate all the right things and we drank very little. Pause. <laughs> We're going to change that tonight. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. Nah, it's, quality. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. So quality. it's just those moments. And then finally for Jack too, when his final game against the Netherlands and he's in the back seat of a car being dropped to the airport. And he just says... Um, he just asks himself, like, you know, will I regret how this turned out? Only time will tell. And it's just such a beautiful way to end it. And, you know, by all accounts, Jack was really upset that he didn't get to 10 years. He was just shy of 10 years, 86 to 95. But what success he brought. And Emma was saying yesterday in our post-show meeting is that Emma's dad, like, wasn't really into football until Italian 90 mm. came around. And, it, you know, it was because of football in general, but that's purely because of Jack Charlton's influence and what he did and like the football like as Eamon Dunphy would say like wasn't the best at times but he brought football to the Irish consciousness and like the Premier League has a, a lot to say and the main reason is why everyone loves football in this country in this generation of people like around my age but I would say Jack started without Jack there'd be 
there wouldn't be the interest in football. So I'm stamping that nomination. What else have you got? <laughs> uh, I say Davy Fitz. Get, get parochial. Davy Fitz. Right. Um, he was on the show earlier this week and just setting him up outside and just watching him on air and just the way like he for me is the definition of charisma it doesn't really matter what he's saying like if it's a transcript of what Davey's saying you're like okay fine but it's just the way he delivers it because he's so thoughtful mm. and there's a kind of an unpredictability to Davey and a bit like your Roddy selection is that I'm not just putting Davey there because of his personality like his CV is phenomenal like what he did with Waterford the first time round was excellent mm. and it's kind of unfinished business and then oh, even yeah. as a car person what he did at Clare 2013 to win the replay it's a brilliant achievement and like he improved Wexford, no ends. Like, everywhere he goes, and with Cork Camogie last year as well, or earlier this year even, he left in the summer. Everywhere he goes, he leaves his mark. And uh, the fittest family now, he's, he's yeah. getting to this new wider audience. You can't, have a, you can't have a conversation about without including Davy Fitz. There's just something... And yeah. it, I, I want to would, know what, he, what he's saying. If he's, on, if he's on air, if he's doing an interview, you, you want to click You want to click know it. what That's he's exactly saying. it. Yeah. And, well, I mean, and that is the kind of intangible charisma about the guy is that it doesn't really matter what topic he's covering. I, just, I think he's fascinating. And when I watch like, the fittest family... I'd be like, I'd love to be trained by him just to see what he'd bring out in me or someone else that I know and how he deals with different personalities. He was very, very interesting with Jaron Shane earlier in the week if people haven't seen it. Like, genuinely, well worth your time in terms of how he approaches individuals. Just, I'm endlessly fascinated Always by Always be selling, Colm. No, we hear you. And also, he's from Clare too, where my mother's from, so, you know, that kind of helps. Enough. Yeah. Go on. What, what, and finally... Uh, I'd say I'd have Roy Keane. I'd, of course you would. <laughs> there was no way we were getting through that list without him. No, I'd have It's him. also very fair, isn't but it? I was, well, you see, I was clarifying with Adrian in one of his uh, many ambiguous criteria for this. I was saying, does he have to be a successful manager or can he be charismatic? And he no, like, I no, didn't no. ask enough questions. I mean, That's I don't be taking the lead out of Colby's book, actually. So I got, I got a text there from a uh, fan of the show, Rory Larmer, saying do not say Roy Keane before I even started yeah. right? but I am going to say Rory and to everyone else because people do forget actually look aside from the Ipswich stint which I know is only like 50% of his managerial career but the other 50% he actually did a brilliant job at Sunderland because when he came in took over for them in August 2006 I think they were bottom or second bottom of the championship and they won promotion that year he turned them around completely mm-hmm. and in his first year in the Premier League I think they got a top 10 finish Correct me if I'm wrong out there, but I think they did very well. And it was the next summer he made his mistakes because he started signing players that were probably the wrong fit for the club. He got a bit of money, and I, I think he was gone before Christmas. And it was a shame to see him go, and I think he regrets leaving as well. But, I mean, I don't need to explain to anybody why Roy Keane's charismatic. But anyway, yeah, I, I think put him in the list successful or not, it's Roy Keane. Well, is, it's, he, is he the most yeah. charismatic Irish sports person of all time? Oof. Do you know who I'd have? If, if, so. if we're talking about sports people, like Joe Brawley has to be on that. Oh, show. yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean, there's time. just no managerial... But is... Career. No, I won't say it. Go on. Go no, on. no, no, I was going to say it. No, I will say it. So I was like, is that kind of a... Who? Not one-dimensional charisma, but like... With, I, I would say about? you do know what you're going to say with Joe Bradley. Like, unlike Dave, you don't know where he's going to come from. You have a fair idea. Ah, of you have no idea where you're going but with Joe But with Joe is... No, it's, just, it's in the ballpark of the same genre of what gets him going. But he's extremely entertaining and like eloquent when he's hired uh, by something. So I do like yeah, I do like so knowledgeable. Way. So he backs it all up. Yeah, as well. yeah, I know he's a brilliant <laughs> talker, like outstanding. He'd be in my like top ten most charismatic. He was people. the one you weren't. You're 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 on the verge of saying not saying. Uh, well, I w- I was close to Martin O'Neill. Oh. Yeah, mm-hmm. and even though I you know I I, I really don't look back in his stint as Ireland manager with any great fondness beyond Italy at Euro 2016. It was brilliant. Like it's great moments. Um, but the way it ended him like that Northern Ireland friendly at the Viva and just I remember how kind of cutting he was and 
interviews, but I absolutely adored him at Celtic because remember we talked about a week ago, like that, that his Celtic era, like I loved that. I team mentioned I him last him. night when I was doing this, but I thought, oh no, he doesn't he qualify mm. because of because what Adrian Thomas so explained. Yeah. Yeah. Just ask the question. Yeah, all that. I think um, I look at any of those names. You can't really argue with too much. The uh, another tip of the cap that I would have to be uh, Kieran McGinney like yeah. you know certainly charismatic like mm-hmm. knows how to hold a room is very funny like has been I remember we were do- doing a crappy quiz recording down in Coppers a few years ago and he was at the back he was very reluctant to be to be brought forward to contribute but um, was certainly yeah. at the back of the room shouting all sorts up at the stage oh, serious? Was, yeah yeah very, I remember very my funny, first but. time interviewing him it was probably my first ever game I covered uh, meeting against Arma and I was shaken interviewing him because he's one of these yeah. people like but he's so lovely yeah. so lovely loads of time for you and yeah yeah definitely has to be up there as well can we wrap a bow on the Irish coverage for the week your thoughts are Ireland <laughs> after the two games um, mm. we'll we'll put a full stop on it here I uh, I look at it, it was Jesus it was uh, nervy at one point wasn't it it was like yeah. at 2-2 I was looking at that game I actually felt a little bit physically sick because I'd sort of got involved you know so much with the idea that like everybody else including it turns out the team that we were going to win this game 2-0 and I, I was feeling a little bit looking at the, looking at the thing just um, that the whole thing was going to sort of implode almost in front of us but I'm desperate for the team to succeed I really am like just yeah. right across the board with them uh, they're playing lovely football I, the results obviously totally understood uh, they can pass it they can play it out from the back mostly they can score worldies Ireland can score worldies. Like, think about that Who for a second. We would say that. I have sat on, on panels before who were selecting the goal of the year for the Republic of Ireland, and it was almost a joke. It was almost a joke with the, with the goals that would limp over the line. So let's not um, discount that part. Um, the team comes from all sorts of backgrounds, and I love that about it. They're fully representative of Ireland uh, 2022. Um, Stephen Kenny, let's face it, is so far beyond what he could have imagined for himself as a manager. He just is. And I love the story of an underdog. I would love him to succeed because he shouldn't be there and all the distractors are like, who is this guy? He's never managed, blah, 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 blah. Because he's the underdog, I'm, I'm, uh, he stands also, if you read anything or listen to him, anything he ever says, he stands for all the things that you would hope or aspire to. So I love him for that. And that's another reason why I wanted to succeed. Uh, my kids are coming to an age where if Ireland were to qualify for the Euros in 2024 or for the World Cup next year, it would be an absolute bandwagon that we'd all be on. Yeah, It'll be something that they'll be able to remember. Special so memories. I want them to succeed for that. I agree totally with, listen to Damien Delaney on Virgin the other day and what he said that Stephen Kenny doesn't have a monopoly on playing football with this Irish team. Totally uh, buy into that. So if he was to uh, depart at some point or another, that some other manager uh, could come in and we could continue to play football. I do think there's a part, there's a responsibility in the FAI almost in relation to that to come out and say, here is our philosophy of football. That would be the thing that I think would make the people who are very invested in the success of Stephen Kenny relax a little bit. Because mm-hmm. if the FAI were to say that, then that, then that totally informs the selection as to who would be the next Republic of Ireland manager. I think we could all breathe a sigh of relief knowing that our football philosophy, without being too lofty about it, was in safe hands. That's my view on it. Yeah, um, I think we can forget some of the performances like against Scotland. It was so exciting, especially that first half. Like the football they were playing, I was like, I'm excited by this. I'm excited by them. Mm. And that's what we wanted for for so long from an Ireland team. And then against Armenia, I was there um, on Tuesday. And in that first half, like I I came away thinking Armenia are terrible. Absolutely terrible. Their touch. 
everything I was like whoa they are way off yeah. on the international side that's that's what I came away from that first half mm. thinking and then obviously into the second half 70 minutes gone and they scored two goals from mistakes at the back and I just thought like how can this be happening and they were so lucky to go away obviously getting the penalty it, it was a, a absolute penalty but they were lucky to, to come away with the win and it's not a reflection on what Stephen Kenny is doing and that's what I felt like I, I think you know he has so many young players getting their caps it's exciting football you can see what he's trying to do it's going to take time you, know, you don't have players for that long when they come into international duty and you know they're, they're finding their feet with all of this and we don't know sometimes who's going to start we don't know what team he's going to put out mm-hmm. there I wanted to see probably a little bit more of Ogbeni, so I don't know what's going on with yeah, that situation. You know, I'd like to see a bit more of him. So, yeah, there's there's exciting times, and we said about these worldy goals, like, unbelievable, Michael Obafemi, like, his touch to get that space and to shoot, like, I was talking to my uncle on the way home, and he was like, you know, like, the way the Brazilians play, he's like, that's mm. like, you know, we, we have a bit of that, and I'm like, jeez, we have a bit of that. And, but the detractors will tell you, oh, Stephen Kenny didn't score the goal, he probably wouldn't be in the team when he was Stephen yeah. Kenny, and he's given mm-hmm. him the confidence. So, like, he's, you can't say that, and then say, you know, uh, Kenny out. Yeah, there's exciting times, but at the, the same time, to like, what happened against our was tough to watch in the end it was was very very tough to watch and it shouldn't have ended that way and I think they'll all go away thinking that defensively there's issues but uh, yeah I don't think we can be writing off Stephen Kenny whatsoever there's exciting times to come and you have to back him we can't keep talking about is he staying or going I think we have to stick it's such a boring conversation yeah (laughs) stick with him it is uh, 5 to 8 OTBM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day and there's been loads of comments coming in some great shouts that we haven't even mentioned yet for the uh, most charismatic Irish manager of all time so we'll come back to that in just a bit but uh, the person that inspired it I'm delighted to say joins us on the line now football writer Daniel Harris good morning Daniel Hello. Uh, Manchester Derby this weekend and we were inspired so much by your um, piece in The Guardian during the week about Eric Ten Hag's strange charisma uh, that we've had a conversation about it uh, a little bit earlier on. Um, I have to say, in relation to Ten Hag, he's doing obviously a knockout job in so many ways, but uh, if he has charisma, it must only be second to his uh, powers to disguise it. <laughs> I mean, I definitely, strange charisma, I don't think was a phrase that I used. I think that was a phrase that the subs who wrote the headline used. But I think what I was trying to say was because with some managers, their charisma just absolutely jumps through the screen at you. Like, you don't have to watch Alex Ferguson on television for very long to think, oh, I get it. And same serve Jurgen Klopp. But if you look at the managers who are at the top end of the Premier League, Guardiola, what Guardiola has is the charisma of achievement, really, that players know that if they sign for him, they're going to win stuff and he's going to make them better players because the proof is right there. And though... He's only ever had the best players available. That continues to be the case. But if you sign for City, it's not so much, I don't think, the charisma of Guardiola as a person. Like, you don't, from what we hear, his pastoral care is not that great. He's not probably someone that the players want to hang out with either. But you know that he's going to be good. And then, whereas you look at someone like Mikel Arteta, who has absolutely no apparent charisma, but what he has is the players want to play for him because a lot of them are grateful to him that... He gave them their chance. And so when that happens, the players will run through brick walls for you. And I think that's one of the things we're seeing with Arsenal now. And I guess also once you start to see the football ideas working, that also helps. But specifically about Ten Hag, I think that he is... The players do think he looks after them well, I think, the players that have played for him before. And he's got a certain amount of intensity, which isn't exactly the same as charisma, because charisma feels more like presence. But... He's got 
something that enables the players to believe in what he says and something that enables him to take them with him. And I guess, as I wrote in the piece, there's also the fact that various of them are grateful to him for giving them a chance at Ajax, bringing them to United, improving their circumstances, improving their family's circumstances. And yeah, it's working at the moment, but obviously it's been four good games, so we'll have to see what happens subsequent to that. What's the, uh, outside of the outcome, the obvious uh, answer to this, what's the dream scenario for United this weekend that, you know, in terms of players stepping up to play, play to their potential, like uh, Pep overthinking it, what's the, uh, how do you get to the ideal outcome this weekend? I think, the, obviously, you, want, you want to see United be competitive. And that sounds like an absolutely appalling thing to say before a derby. But the last, the last couple weren't competitive. City won and could have won by more. And you want to see progress with United. City are obviously the finished article as a team more or less. They signed as the finishing touch, the, a ridiculous finishing touch, the fairy on the top of the tree or whatever you want to call it, uh, in the summer. So you want to see United able to compete with that, able to able to be brave so that they're not spooked and constantly sitting off and just allowing City to dictate. Any Guardiola team, you know that you're not going to have probably more than 40% possession uh, on, on a good day. So what that means is you have to be very, very good at the back and very, very good up front because you're not going to have, with 30% possession or whatever it is you're going to have, half of that's going to be with your goalkeeper and with your back four. So you're then really feeding off scraps for your ability to create chances and to, and to score goals. So what you want to see from United, I guess, is we've seen Alessandro uh, Martinez has defended uh, Erling Haaland really well in the Champions League when Dortmund played Ajax last season. And he's going to have to do that again. And you want to see United defending with the kind of aggression that we've seen over the last few games. Last season, Varane was much too eager to sit off and basically allow the carnage around him to develop in that he himself didn't play that badly that often. But you would expect when you sign a player that good that the way that he's going to play is going to elevate the rest of the players around him. And that was patently not the case. But this season, Ten Hag has been talking about Varane being a leader and Martinez plays like that too. So as a partnership, they're starting to be a bit more aggressive and put themselves in a position to, to dominate forward lines. Now, they're not going to do that to Manchester City, but what they might be able to do is they might be able to keep City out for long enough to create enough decent chances for themselves. And one of the things, like one of the questions Ten Hag probably has to answer for himself is what he's going to do in his midfield. Because on the one hand, if you pick the midfield he's been picking, which is McTominay, Ericsson and Bruno, those guys are, Bruno, Bruno in particular, but also Ericsson a little bit, they're quite high-risk players. That They're always looking to gamble to try and make something happen. But against City, you do that, you don't see the ball for a little while. So... It's possible that he might decide, particularly if Rashford's not fit, that it'll only play two strikers and chuck another midfield in there, say Casemiro. But at the same time, it feels like he's got his principles about how he wants the team to play, and he didn't deviate from them against Liverpool in a game where United were really in trouble. So I think that he'll probably do that again this week, this weekend. And what he'll hope is that United will defend well enough, they'll defend the box really well, which they've been doing recently, admittedly against inferior teams to City but they'll defend the box well and then the players that they have in possession will give them enough possession so that they can make things happen in the City's box and as we know City are a brilliant team but their defence is not that good it's just very hard to get at them Yeah, going into a derby game it's funny because it feels different to how you're going to set up so do you go toe-to-toe with them or do you catch them on the counter but then it's a derby game can you sit deep and and hope to catch them on the counter, or is it about going toe-to-toe? What way do you think they will set up, Daniel? 
United have been defending quite deep against teams against against the worst teams in City. So I don't I won't expect I wouldn't expect the line to suddenly be on the halfway line because the thing about defending that way is they're better they're better positioned to do it than they were with Maguire and Lindelof because uh, Varane and Martinez both got recovery pace. But if you've got a goalkeeper who's stuck to his line, that makes it much harder to leave so much space in between, in behind, and you can't really have space in behind if there's not going to be pressure on the ball. And pressure on the ball against City is also a pretty hard thing to do because they move it so well. So I would expect United to sit fairly deep because that's what they've been doing. And I would also expect them to, I don't think we'll be seeing too much passing out from the back either because City defend from the front so well. I think De Gea and, and obviously De Gea doesn't have feet really. So I expect United will whack it long and go from there. But once you see them in possession, I definitely expect them to be brave in possession because that's how Christian Eriksen and Bruno Fernandes play. And I think what they'll be looking to do is they'll be looking to play Jaden Sancho probably quite narrow so that he can get involved in the play as well. Because if you have that kind of player, he's not someone really that benefits from being stuck out on the touchline. Mm. Whereas on the other side, I think you'll probably see Anthony keep the width because the way that he likes to play is he likes to start wide and then, and then move inside and contribute to the way that United can build the play and try and get a hold of things in midfield. But with City, again, it's getting out against them is difficult and getting the ball from them is difficult. So in order to beat them, you have to defend the box really well and you have to take the chances. And United haven't really been a team that is deadly in front of goal or ruthless at the back either in, for many years, even when they were winning games under Ole. They sort of made hard work of so many of them. So I don't think that they're suddenly going to come and just dispatch City. But I do think they're good enough now to compete against anyone on a one-off if they happen to turn up. Uh, we might touch on the forward options in a second in terms of what they're left with uh, on options there. You touched on um, the Casimiro question a little bit earlier on and I was interested to listen to Paul's goals in the overlap during the week talking about Ten Hag and that you know he hadn't too much to do with his signing and there was a rush laid on in the window. Um, I was left kind of thinking, who cares? Like They're left with this unbelievable uh, player of unbelievable quality and it feels it's only a matter of time before he, like, you can't leave a player of that quality on the bench all the time. What is the What do you think is Ten Hag? Like, I, I, I say that despite McTominay form obviously what is Ten Hag's thinking on it and when when is uh, Casemiro eventually going to get into this uh, starting the team well yeah you do kind of wonder if I mean Ten, what Ten Hag has said is that Casemiro came late he doesn't understand what's expected of him yet but we do also know that he wasn't really the kind of player Ten Hag wanted I mean Casemiro is a brilliant player so he's an excellent second choice but he's not the same as Frankie de Jong, which is what, which is what uh, Ten Hag wanted. So I guess it is possible that Ten Hag didn't really want him and had to settle for him. But he didn't look that fit in the game that he started against, um, against Sociedad. So that might be one reason he hasn't started yet. I mean, I don't think anyone thought that we would get to this point of the season after United signed Casemiro and he wouldn't just be playing every yeah. game now. But I think part of it is... Tomlin's been playing well and the system has been working fairly well so it kind of sends a message I suppose that it doesn't matter who you are that if you're not if, if a person who takes your place is playing well you're not getting into the team and I guess that gives him some kind of moral authority with the rest of the team so that it doesn't look bad so much that say Maguire's not playing because Maguire got dropped the person that came in played well and Maguire's not back in the team now so I can see why he's not included Casemiro but at some point he's going to have to. 
But the question is whether he waits until McTominay starts playing badly, but what if he doesn't? Or he just drops McTominay even though he's playing well. I don't, I don't think that it will be Casemiro at the weekend, but um, at some point he will have to play. But I don't, yeah. I think that what Casemiro has also done quite well is he's helped them see out a couple of games quite nicely. And again, that, that isn't why he was signed, but it is a particular skill, someone who can come in, take the ball and play with authority when everyone else is tired. So he, does, he has been useful in that aspect against Southampton and Leicester where he looked more like the player that we thought he was. But then the Sociedad game came after that and he looked dreadful in that one. So uh, I guess, I guess Tenas will decide. But, yeah, I don't think it'll be Sunday. Mm. Yeah, no, it feels he's getting fitter and he played well for Brazil as well in the international break. But, yeah, it seems like he might, he might hold off. There's a lot of games to come in October. So, yeah, it seems you don't want to upset that in there. But on a City point of view, then, how do you stop Haaland? Like, is it the stopping the supply to him? Because the funny thing about it is he doesn't actually get that many touches throughout the game. It, it's just those few touches a game, but they always end with those magic touches that end up in a goal. But it's like six or seven a game. Yeah, there are certain things, there are certain players that do certain things, and when they do them, you can't really stop them. The goal, the winning goal that he scored against Dortmund, you could sit there as a defender and, and, or, and look at it and think, well, what could the defenders have done better? And the answer is not that much. But what you have to do against Holland, I think, is, as you say, you have to be aggressive because he, his, his movement's so good that if you just let him get on with it, he'll score. So it's more about being... The way that Martinez defends is that he's always looking to get in front of the striker, looking to get, looking to get the first touch on the ball when the ball comes in. Now, as you say, Haaland often does, isn't even looking to do that. He's looking to get the final touch. And that makes him much harder to defend in a way because that final touch is always going to be inside the box. So if you mistime the tackle, it's a penalty. And the way that uh, Martinez and Malassia defend wouldn't be that surprising if something like that happened where they nipped in and conceded the penalty. But both of them like to defend on the front foot and both of them like to, are brave in the way that they defend and proactive, so you would always, I guess, encourage that, and that's the kind of defending you want to see. But as you said earlier, like one of the ways is you're trying to stop the service. You're trying to stop the ball getting to Haaland, and the way that you do that is often by, by, defending, by defending quite deep and by trying to stop crosses from coming in. I mean, I think the thing with City now is that they don't really have any wingers, and that means that the back four, your back four can be quite narrow. Because if Mahrez, if, Mahrez, if Mahrez is playing and is playing on the right-hand side, then if you're forcing him to go on the outside, he's not dangerous there because he's, got no, he's not going to cross it with his right foot and also he's not got pace to beat someone on the outside. And presumably, I guess it would be Foden on the left. And Foden obviously does have that ability to skirt around the outside at speed, but he's not really a winger. He's not really what he wants to do. Foden's player is really looking to score goals, looking to get into the box. And I think that... That means that you're looking much more to defend narrow, so the wingers, the wingers have to stay wide, and then you need your probably your wide, your wide attackers to look after the fullbacks because they're quite a significant part of the danger at that point because they might, it might be them in the end who are tossing the balls in for Haaland. But I think if you leave space in behind, then you've got to assume that once or twice a game Haaland is going to get in. So my guess is United try and restrict that space and try and, as I said, defend narrow to stop, to stop, the, wide, stop the wide attackers coming in field and, yeah, then try and look after the full-backs. Yeah, we'll see how it plays out uh, over the weekend. Daniel, thanks a million. 
Cheers, lads. Have a good weekend, everyone. Thanks a lot. You too, Daniel Harris, there, head of the uh, Manchester Derby this weekend. 20 years ago on YouTube says, looking forward to hearing about the big derby, which I'm assuming is a bit of a, bra- a, bit of a, a barb on uh, Manchester there. And we will be talking about what I'm assuming you're talking about is the big derby. Uh, Spurs against Arsenal with Martin Lipton very shortly. Should mention as well, there's a tweet out from Leanne Kiernan, the Republic of Ireland Liverpool striker. Good news, she says. Surgery was successful. I'll see you back in the pitch soon, Reds. Thank you for all the kind messages. Really appreciate it. Lots of love. And uh, a couple of shots of her there. One at Anfield and one on the hospital bed. So she's definitely a player who deserves um, uh, Robert the Green at some point or another because she's had a, such a bad run of it. And uh, mostly under previous regimes, almost with Ireland, certainly when she's been fit, hasn't always got the games that you would feel that she deserved or within games had been left leading the line on her own. And physically, she's probably just not that sort of player. So um, Yeah, she did well against Slovakia as well when she yeah. came off the bench. She did so well. Uh, yeah, it was so disappointing to hear that news that, uh, yeah, she's going to be out for a while. But, yeah, brilliant to hear the surgery's gone well and she'll be back in action soon. Uh, a couple of comments um, before we get to Martin Lipton. Uh, some shouts on the most charismatic Irish manager of all time. Will on YouTube, just listen to the chat, and managed to understand what the conversation was about, actually. Man, oh, what, oh. what the fuss is about. I'll he show said, you the message. you're talking about clear. all time, Paddy O'Shea, Kevin Heffernan, Gerlach Nan was a name oh. that hadn't come to mind that definitely we can include in that list mm-hmm. uh, Shane wondering if I was on holidays in the Aran Islands in <laughs> the jumper <laughs> it's October basically it's freezing um, and bum 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 another comment in here Thought, uh, thoughts on Neil McGee uh, says Pat Gallagher top three fullbacks of the last 30 years for me with Darren Fay and James Moynihan Darren uh, Fay retired. nice yeah yeah oh unbelievable yeah she's 37 years of age and he was brilliant to watch yeah. he, I think you said he was a dog on the pitch that you said to me at the start I was like absolutely that's how you would describe him um, yeah serious service and I think he's just going to concentrate in now on his club football with Quidor so yeah. we'll be watching out for that as well yeah. All-Ireland's Ulsters All-Stars the whole uh, the whole gamut of it right all this week we've a fantastic opportunity to combine sports and leisure with a visit to uh, Los Angeles on America's West Coast you and two friends could be jetting off with the multi-award winning Cassidy Travel on direct flights from Dublin with Aer Lingus on the 1st of December what an amazing prize you can spend four nights in the four star hotel the Wayfair in downtown LA and take in the Rams against the Seahawks NFL game and uh, to be in the hat for this great prize you can just follow at Cassidy Travel on Twitter and retweet our competition post it closes today I believe so all with thanks to Cassidy Travel your one stop sports travel shop sports and travel a perfect match and you can visit CassidyTravel.ie for more details and all of that and uh, stay tuned as it's the last day there's been a huge uh, response to it and if you're interested head along and check out our social channels for that after the break uh, we're going to be live with Martin Lipton ahead of the North London Derby tomorrow lunchtime back after these OTB AM It's almost quarter past eight you're watching OTB AM lots still to come we're going to be talking rugby with Alan Quinlan in just a little bit but first of all back to the football to the other Derby Martin Lipton good morning to you Good morning. We'll get stuck into the other derby in just a couple of moments' time, but I want to ask. Is there another game this week? Yeah, I know then? we've had we've had we were just talking about the other derby, and then somebody texted in to say they're looking forward to the chat about the big derby, which uh, you know, uh, England. Before we get into that, Martin, if you don't mind, uh, we've asked you a lot about Gareth Southgate on this show, um, and you've a long and stated uh, affiliation, and I think it's fair enough to say affection uh, for the man. Very dis- yeah. Very disappointed. Go ahead, yeah. So as I said, I think it was a it was an interesting game on on Monday, uh, in that they play. It, it was a bit cautious. I thought the first 40, 35 minutes, and England had a very good spell before half time. Sterling really should have scored, and they could have been one or two up. Uh, then the goal 
hurt them and it they 15 minutes they were a shambles they really were a mess and I thought Germany were going to win two or three or four at that point it looked horrible and as soon as England got one goal back they became a very different team deservedly went back in front and they played really well and then the goalkeepers thrown one in but the mood at Wembley which might have been starting to get slightly nervous even perhaps uh, mutinous ended anything but that. It was a very positive feel from the fans at the end of the game, that they were very confident, much more so than they had been um, at the start of play. Can I ask you about the like the, the biggest, one of the biggest accusations is levelled against Southgate at the minute is in relation to Harry Maguire, and it's not really a conversation about whether, uh, you know, uh, I or you feel that Harry Maguire should start, but it's Southgate's management of the situation almost, and almost by his own admission, listen to him afterwards, he was talking about Maguire lacking confidence, needs game time, which of course he won't get, you suspect, between uh, now and, and World Cup time uh, comes around. Your thoughts on on that specific uh, thing, because people would say he should drop Maguire, get him out of the firing line, better for Maguire, better for England, better for Southgate. I think it's very hard to keep Maguire in the team at the moment, the way he's playing. Uh, unless he gets some football and shows more confidence. But I would say that United have got, I think, 13 matches between now and the World Cup. By the very nature of, of football, they, he's going to play some football. They can't pick the same team every game because they're going to end up with injuries and everything else. So he is going to get some football. Whether that's enough for him to regain his confidence is another matter altogether. There's no question that whatever happens, he'll be in the squad. Um, because A, he's a player that... Um, Southgate likes, he's also got experience and he's played well in tournaments in the past, even in the Euros if you remember and he wasn't in great form going in when he played, which was after the first game which he missed for injury, he was actually really good, so there's that part of it, but I have to say that the danger I felt on uh, on Monday night was when he made the first mistake, well in fact the first two mistakes for the first goal he's then gone trying to chase um, a degree of uh, I wouldn't say retribution, that's not the right word, but a, a, you know, a, a chance to put his get get the story straight to get himself back uh, as the hero of the hour. And in fact, that actually made him even worse because he then gets caught in possession in a position he should never be for the second goal. So there is that that danger that he ends up trying too hard to justify his place in the squad when he's not confident and therefore makes more mistakes. The one thing I have to say is, who else plays left side centre half in the three? There's the issue. But surely from Southgate's point of view, you're, you're looking at a player devoid of confidence like you've just had to look at any game he's played over the last year. Even, you know, his demeanour is uh, suggests a player who's low on confidence. Is it, is it, despite what you've just said, and obviously it's Southgate's job to come up with an alternative, has it been a mistake for him to stick by Maguire? I think he believes in playing a player into full. One of the things you've got to remember is that he was in that England squad in 96, uh, where the talk all the way up to the tournament was, why are we persisting with this centre-forward who doesn't score goals? And Venables, for whom Gareth has an awful lot of time, a great deal of time, always said, no, I trust this man to come good. And when it mattered, Alan Shearer came good. And I think whilst that's not uh, at the forefront of Gareth Southgate's mind, that's always in his mind. He remembers that. He remembers the value of faith and loyalty to key players and how it works in tournaments if you show that to them. So I think that's a, a factor that can't be ignored. Um, let's talk about the game this weekend. It wasn't that long ago, uh, Martin, that we'd sort of been mourning the passing of the North London Derby, not necessarily in a competitive sense, because it's 
generally been that, but just in the overall relevance, I guess, to the title race. But suddenly, two teams at the top end, top players, good starts to the season. How long, uh, in your view, has it been since we've had a North London derby of this significance? Relevance? Well, I suppose you could argue the one last season was even more significant because it was all or nothing and £50 million on the... For, for the top the, four, though, I mean, yeah. in terms but of for the, the title race, well, Spurs yeah. have never been a title contender, realistically, apart from one or two years under Pochettino, at which point Arsenal weren't. It was that sort of period where the two teams were going, where, where Spurs were overtaking Arsenal. Uh, I mean, 16-17, I think you could argue, where... Um, sorry, 15-16, rather, the Leicester year, where obviously Arsenal were the only team who beat Leicester twice that season, but Leicester won the title. Um, and in that season, they were both in the top three at the end of the season. So you could argue there is a parallel there. But you never thought at, at any time in those two matches between them that they were either of them were going to win the title. It was they ended up in that position almost by default. Um, and, and Leicester, as we know, won the league. So before that, you're going back to, well, well before the advent of the Premier League, in truth. And how do you see Arsenal setting up? Because... At the moment, it's looking like maybe six or seven players are going to be injured. They've they started so well, but it looks like there's going to be a lot of changes maybe in the side. The one question you have about Arsenal this season, and I've got to be honest, you know, as a Spurs supporter, never hidden that, I think Arsenal have been the most impressive team this season. I think they've been absolutely excellent. And the one game they dropped at United, is, I, I think they should have won. They were the better team and they just lost their heads when they got back to 1-1. I thought they were terrific. But the one caveat there's always been looking at them is, how many players have they got outside the first 13, 14 that you'd want in the team? Um, there is a question about the, the strength of the, of the depth of the squad. Well, we're going to see that answered at midday or one o'clock tomorrow morning because that will be, oh, tomorrow afternoon rather, because this will be potentially a test of that squad depth. Um, and only Mikel Arteta really knows what he's got in that squad, whether he has the depth. If you're asking me to, to judge, and this will obviously be the prequel to a 4 0 Arsenal win, I think that they haven't got sufficient depth to maintain a challenge because in this season of all seasons, there's going to be more stress, more strain, more injury on players than ever before. You know, they've got nine matches just next month. They come back after a World Cup, which in itself is going to be strange with players going to the World Cup, others sat at home for six weeks not playing. And then they'll have to play at Arsenal's case, 24 league games between Boxing Day and the end of the season, plus the domestic cups, plus the Europa League, in which I think they'll go quite deep. So, you know, the demands on the, on the squad are going to be deeper than ever. And that may prove, I think probably will prove, to be Arsenal's undoing in the final analysis in terms of them maintaining a title challenge. But then again, I don't think anyone actually is going to t- challenge Manchester City by the end of the season because they're going to walk away with it. So there you go. It does feel like every conversation about the Premier League is predicated on the fact that it's everybody bar City almost. I know. Yeah, we I... Could, if we could hamstring them or fan <laughs> them or something, but that, that, that's really allowed. <laughs> When you're looking at international duty as well, and maybe I'm going off topic a little bit, but like Arsenal, about three or four players that really are at international duty. So, what would you rather as as a manager, as a club manager, if you're Arteta? Like, do you want them going playing in, at international level and maybe not having the best of times of it, or do you want them back at home within the group? Um, you know, or do you want that game time? I often wonder where. What would they actually rather see them doing well and pushing on, or 
uh, would they rather them back a base? If they're going to go with their national teams, the managers want them to A, play mm. and B, come back in. Actually, it's A, come back uninjured, B, yeah. play well, uh, not play poorly. Uh, but the preferred option for any manager would be none of them get selected. Not at this stage of the season. You know, they just want them to be in in the in the fold, working, training. This could have been, you know, a, a two-week training block rather than a very disrupted two-day training block is what you end mm-hmm. up with. Actually, it's not too bad because it was Monday matches, but that was just for the England players. There was others who didn't come back till Wednesday uh, or even Thursday if there was some sort of far-away far players coming coming back. So they haven't had the preparation time that they would have done. And obviously, the last two or three days before a game are all about preparation, about tactics, about tinkering, about what you're going to try and do on the Saturday. How, uh, I was interested in your comments about Arsenal earlier on. How impressed um, have you been with them, Martin? Like, certainly one of the tempting angles to go on with this uh, preview of the game is that, you know, there's revenge in the air after the run into last season and, uh, you know, the way it fell for Arsenal. But they're actually a really different team because of some of the players they've brought in and the likes of Saliba has come back in the pitch and has uh, sort of, like, taken the world off its hinges in some ways. How impressed have you been um, with them? Well, as I said, I think they've been standout teams so far this season. They've been terrific. Uh, you could look at the fixtures they've had and say, oh, well, they should win them. It doesn't matter whether they should win them. They have won them. And they played really well. And they played with a panache and a certainty and a conviction and a dominance that we haven't seen from an Arsenal team in a very long time. And I've, I have been uh, really impressed. I'm, I'm a massive fan of Bakayo Saka. I think he's a fabulous player. Uh, and I would do anything to get him in my England team. Uh, I, I don't care who I have to leave out apart from Kane, who you can't really leave out. But I want, I want Saka in my England team. I think Odegaard has been excellent for them this season and they missed him in the last game and still still won. Saliba, as you say. I, I think when you end up playing Ben White out of position, that tells you how well the centre-halves have played because he obviously wants Ben White in the team and he's playing him at right-back. Now, maybe because of injury to Tomiyasu, but even so, White's played there. Ramsdale's been solid. They're, yeah, the injury is interesting because they were very keen on... Um, on the, the the Ukrainian boy, they got Zinchenko. They got from City, but he had a few knocks. And then Tierney came in, and he got an injury. So we don't know mm-hmm. who's going to be fit enough to play left back. They wouldn't really want to play Xhaka at left back. Uh, talking of whom, he has led by example, hasn't he? He's been 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 excellent as well. They haven't had a weak link this season. That's the truth. They've been they've been really good. Uh, and you're allowed to say that. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with praising the team that plays well. And from a Spurs point of view then, what do you think? Um, I suppose at the moment it's been defensively at times. There's been questions, but they're scoring goals. They're scoring a lot of goals. I think they've scored the most behind City so far this season. Yeah, they haven't conceded too many either. I don't know how. I mean, the Leicester game, they were an absolute shambles at the back and still won 6-2. Uh, the interesting thing, that a lot of Spurs fans are very keen on in playing three in midfield. Uh, and they looked to the, what happened when Bissouma came on against Leicester and said they gave them shape and definition. They were quicker on the ball. They had more penetration. Of course, it means you have to play one fewer attacking player. Uh, and a lot of fans say, well, why don't they play uh, Kulisewski at right wing back? Now, you're not going to do that away at Arsenal in any occasion, I don't think, because you want the stability that Royale, who why he doesn't offer much on the ball, he offers quite a lot off the ball and defensively he's quite sound. But uh, Kulisewski may be injured in any event, having come back from Sweden with a bit of a knock. Uh, so he has to leave one out. If he plays three in midfield, he's got to leave Richarlison or Son out. Probably Richarlison, because Son, when he scored and came on and, and did so well against Leicester, looked like Son again. You can't leave out Kane. Um, but yeah, I think they haven't been great. 
but they have been successful. And when you've got strikers who can score goals, that buys you a bit, doesn't it? It allows you to not be quite as flowing and fluent as you might want to be if you're winning games. And they've done that thus far. This is a real test. They had a test against Chelsea, which they didn't deserve to pass and did with the late equaliser because they should have lost that game. There's no doubt about it. That was their poorest performance, I think, of the season. But they found a way to, to steal a point. Um, they weren't great at West Ham, although they were one, one, one up and they, they got away with a point. The other games they've won. Winning's a brilliant thing. I'm obviously the exception there is Sporting Lisbon where they collapse in, the, in injury time. But as of, as of all this season, that they have found a way without playing particularly well. Now, you do think looking at the collection of players in, in Conte's squad that actually they might start playing at some point. And if they do that, then they're going to be really good. Not good enough to challenge City, but certainly top three. Um, a couple of things I wanted to ask you before we wrap. Uh, one by Tom, one story by Tom Barkley in your own paper this morning in the Sun. Antonio content, uh, and the headline writers are on their uh, on their corn this morning. Happy Italian could sign now or in the last day of the season. Juve linked disrespectful as he plots long Spurs stay, so he's ready to sign a new contract, according to uh, Tom Barkley there. And uh, nothing like a bit of contract talk to focus the minds and um, you know have everybody have the perception at least that Antonio Conte is the man they want. Um, and it looks like he's going to be around for the foreseeable future. Does that leave uh, Spurs fans in a happy position? I think a lot of fans will be very keen to see him sign. Look, there are two people's signatures they want on pieces of paper, and one is Antonio Conte, the other is Harry Kane, uh, and that would give certainty and give them two years. With with Conte, look, it's no surprise that when Juventus are in trouble, he's linked with a return to Juventus. You've got to remember, because he fell out with uh, Andrea Agnelli, uh, and a lot of the anti-Juventus get Conti back talk in Italy is because quite a lot of the media don't like Agnelli and they want Agnelli out of Juventus and of course it's the family firm Uh, you know it it is Agnelli and Fiat and Juventus we know that Um, so that's unlikely and also uh, Max Levy's having a tough time and there is a danger that Juve might well Right, looking, they won't be in the top four this season and then who knows what happens in terms of the, the hierarchy at that club so Conte won't be unhappy at being in demand. Whether we want to go back to Juve under the current ownership is less less clear, I think it's fair to say. Daniel Levy knows that if he lets Conte go, he'll be criticised. Um, he doesn't want to do that, and he can see that there's something building at Tottenham. But also, the history of, of Antonio Conte is, let's be honest, nothing lasts for too long. It's not in his nature. Mm. You know, he develops jitterbug and wanderlust after a couple two three years anywhere because that's what he does and it's not being critical it's the sort of manager is he doesn't believe in comfort actually i think he feels that he has to feel uncomfortable and he also as we've seen does like to promote a little bit of of chaos and controversy within a club it's you know he did it he won at chelsea and the first thing he did was upset the apple car um and he went the following season and Mm. You know, that's what he does. But at the moment, I think he's quite happy. The fact that he's got his fellow countrymen in Peritici as his sporting director appears to be uh, a massive benefit in that he's got someone he can actually sound off to and discuss and who can get things done for him in the next door office. He's not had that uh, at Chelsea, for example. So I think that's a, that's a positive, but it's a strange old, he's a strange old fish and it's a strange old game. 
I must say I've also enjoyed the uh, story because ultimately it doesn't matter about uh, Nike making eyes at Erling Haaland across the room in a way that like might affect uh, Harry Kane's boot deal. Um, it's been a fantastic uh, distraction. It's a really juicy story that I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to following over the next while. Give us your prediction here, Martin. What's the um, uh, brief, if you can, what's the outcome? If you offer me a one-all draw, I'd take it. Uh, and I hate the match. I'd rather know the result and not watch a ball kicked. I just <laughs> loathe it. I, I never, ever have enjoyed it. Whatever the score, I never enjoy it. Or if they're three up with five minutes to go, I can sort of enjoy it. Spurs don't win at Arsenal. I haven't won at Arsenal since, 19, since 2010. Mm. Um, I can't see that changing. But mm. I would. T- I think I think both sides would probably walk away with a one all relatively satisfied. Mm. It's just too tense. Is that the is that the point? Yeah, I just it's 50 years of angst that just flows <laughs> through me. 55 years in my case, it's horrible. I've never ever liked it. It's the one game of the season I don't want to watch. It's, I'm actually going to Fulham tomorrow afternoon, so that'd be fine. I can only have to, only have to watch half of it. <laughs> well, it's normally the point of the conversation where I tell you to enjoy the game, but I might uh, might forego that no, this morning. Never. <laughs> Thanks, William. Cheers, bye-bye. Thanks a lot, Martin Lipton on the line there, head of the uh, North London Derby, 8.31 uh, on this Friday morning. OTBM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Up next, we're going to speak with the senior writer for The Times, Sean O'Neill, on the story of the British travel industry executive, Mark Bennett, who was working on the Qatar World Cup before being found hanged in a Doha hotel uh, during Christmas in 2019. And uh, to take us there, it's John Giles on Troy Parrott and his performance for Ireland the other night, uh, talking to Nathan last night. What are your thoughts on and I guess the performance of the front two over the two games of Obafemi and Paris well, Paris lost his confidence obviously I think he's, he's a good player I think he's a lot of ability but you've got to take that confidence. chance over in Scotland hmm? he has to take that chance over in Scotland well, that's, well, that's, 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 that's the condition he's in mentally mm. you know? like, like scoring goals is the most difficult thing in the lot Nathan and you got through like he did I'd say when he received the ball he was a bag of nerves you know, because he's not scoring at club level. Because he's not scoring, like it's 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 the most it's the most difficult thing in football is to score goals. Like and I might might have mentioned to you before in my experience, like when I played with Mick Jones, I might have mentioned it before, and maybe your listeners have felt up. Listen, but Mick Jones is a very sensitive lad, and if he missed a chance, you'd say, "Come on, Mick, he got his head down." Alan Clark would tell you to f off, <laughs> right? Arrogant, he was an arrogant, mm. but he'd score the next one. Mick could still be. Thinking about the one he just yeah, missed. Yeah, that's what happens with those mm. lads. Jimmy Greaves is like that. Jimmy Greaves is the best one to bat in tennis law. Jimmy Greaves is one of the best finishers I've ever seen, ever. Jimmy Greaves' attitude to football seems to be some you win, some you lose. Yeah. But you get the next one. Like, Jimmy didn't get upset about it. Like, Jimmy scored goals after God played against him for, for 10 years. He was unbelievable. A miracle man. But I've seen him miss chance as well. No bother. Again, those players are few and far between. The Robbie Keens of this world are few and far between. First of all, they don't miss many anyway. Mm. But when they do miss one or two, it doesn't get them down. Do you know what I mean? I think Parrot obviously seems to be a lad that hasn't scored this season. And it, it, next time he gets a chance, it's become more and more difficult. I think the chance he had the other day, he took it too quickly. But that's nerves in it. You know, that, that's, strikers are a different specimen mm. to any other player on the pitch. Because they've got to score the goals, and sometimes it's 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 they're unlucky or they're lucky. But the most of the other ones don't care about the ones they missed. They're going to score the next one. Yeah. And uh, like obviously, part I don't know part of we don't know him is that type of attitude because he's he's missed the other day. It was total nerves. He never got into a right position to to score it. 
and it's, goal scoring is the hardest thing of the lot hopefully he'll, he'll get his confidence back it does happen from nowhere they scored a couple of goals and they're back again but unfortunately for us it was a big miss 25 to 9 on this Friday morning you're very welcome along to OTBM if you're just joining us very good morning to you wherever it is you are at this morning uh, on your commute or otherwise and do please uh, get in contact with us keep those comments coming in plenty to come back to which we'll do in just a little bit that was John Giles with Nathan last night and you can check out the full piece up on our YouTube channel or indeed uh, you can podcast it at all the usual places now it's been a big seven days for reporting on and news in relation to the human rights violations in Qatar ahead of the World Cup later this year Ian Herbert in the mail uh, on the almost fire festival-like preparation levels uh, in Qatar at the back end of last week. Nick Harris in the Mail on Sunday about the 2,800 and over unexplained workers' deaths as we get set for the greatest show on earth. Um, and then there was the Denmark shirt manufacturer Hummel signing a, a sh- um, designing a shirt in protest at the tournament uh, they say has cost thousands of lives. And now Sean O'Neill, senior writer for The Times, writes another story arising uh, from Qatar in The Times uh, today. Morning, Sean. Good morning, Adrian. How are you? Good, and thanks for joining us. Who was Mark Bennett? Mark Bennett uh, was a British um, travel executive, quite a senior player in the travel industry. He'd been a director of Thomas Cook and TUI. He'd he'd helped transform Dubai into a go-to destination. And he was uh, headhunted by Qatar Airways to head up their tourism division called Discover Qatar in about 2017 with, with an eye on the World Cup. You know, the whole idea was to revamp that country's tourism infrastructure. It re- doesn't really have a tourism infrastructure, so it's, it's building from scratch with, with the World Cup in mind. Uh, and um, the job was incredibly stressful for him because um, his family were back in the UK um, and, and he was very, he's very much a family man, um, big rugby fella. He would go home at weekends just to watch one of his kids playing rugby, you know, and make it a 14-hour round trip from, from Qatar to, uh, to London to, to catch a rugby match at, at a school. Um, so he started looking in 2019 for a new job, and the new job he had his eye on was with a Saudi travel company, um, doing a similar thing in Saudi Arabia as as he was doing in Qatar. Um, and that seems to have, um, well, shall we say, allegedly annoyed his bosses at Qatar Airways because um, at the time Saudi and Qatar were involved in a, a very bad diplomatic dispute. There was a blockade of Qatar by, by several neighbouring countries. So Mark fell foul of that diplomatic incident and when he resigned, he found himself in a world of trouble, basically. And was found hanged in his hotel room in 2019, I understand, Sean. The Qatar... so, um, to, to fill in the gap between, you know, he, he resigns, he gets arrested, he gets accused of stealing confidential information belonging to the airline. Um, he's arrested by the secret police in Qatar. He's... Um, he told friends later that he was tortured, horribly tortured, um, you know, sprayed with hoses, beaten against walls. Um, uh, I mean, he went through an awful time. So when he came out of detention after about three weeks, he was a, a shadow of the man he'd been. But he still wasn't able to leave Qatar. He spent another seven weeks in a kind of legal limbo where he wasn't allowed to leave the country. Um, and then um, uh, quite mysteriously on Christmas Eve, he uh, was found hanging in a hotel in, in Doha. And Qatar authorities reporting it as a suicide and a British coroner subsequently, um, from your report, was more dubious of that conclusion? The British coroner said no evidence of suicidal intents um, and the family had been out there. They'd seen the room where he died. His clothes were let out to go out on Christmas Eve night. He had his gym kit ready for going running in the morning. 
Um, there was a book open on his bed. As one of his friends, who's actually an ex-police officer, said to me, this was evidence of a man who had a plan for to keep on living, not a man who was planning to end his life. Mm. And as you say, the nub of the issue appears that uh, not only had he resigned from his uh, from his job in Qatar, but that that there was the possibility that he was going to take up this job in Saudi Arabia, and perhaps that that was the the nub of the issue. What? So you've made inquiries, obviously locally. Um, what sort of information have you been able to get back from Qatar authorities in terms of their response to this? Well, the, the Qatar government didn't respond. We sent a whole string of questions to them; they didn't answer us at all. Uh, they've subsequently answered Channel Four News and said. They don't. Nobody gets ill-treated in Qatar's prisons now. I think the United Nations and, and various other bodies might quibble with that one. Um, Qatar Airways said he left on good terms, and um, they subsequently found out about, uh, alleged that he leaked confidential information, and that led to them being forced, being compelled to report him to the police. So they said whatever happened to him after his arrest was a police matter. Mm. And we're seeing, as I outlined at the top, more and more reports in terms of the working conditions for people in, in Qatar. From your report, it seems very very much the employers hold the whip hand there um, oh, for, it's for, kind for of, workers it's, across it's, the board. It, it, one man I spoke to who worked in a senior position in Qatar always said, no matter whether you're a, a manual labourer, you know, he said, if you're a Pakistani labourer working on a building site, or you're me, a well-paid British executive working for Qatar Airways, the employer owns you. They basically own your life. You have to get permission to leave for the weekend. You have to get permission to leave the country. You know, you're, you're strictly you're well paid if you're a, if you're a top executive, but you're um, you're controlled. You're owned. Qatar obviously is a ten billion investment package in the UK and and maybe more than that across the board. Um, that package specifically brokered by Boris Johnson obviously over the last couple of years. Uh, Liz Truss had her part in it too. Does that quench the thirst in some regards of official Britain to look into this case and cases like it? Uh, I would say yes. Um, I mean, it was quite interesting as we pieced the dates together of what happened that. Um, uh, the Foreign Office closed the file in Mark Bennett's case a week after Liz Truss became Foreign Secretary last year. Uh, the following month, October 2021, Liz Truss was in Qatar for talks with the Amir. Uh, the following May, so you know, six months ago, um, uh, the Amir was in Downing Street to sign this £10 billion deal. And that's just the latest in multi-billion pound deals. You know, Qatar owns 20% stake of Heathrow Airport. It owns the Shard. It owns... Harrods, you know, it, it, it's a massive and a growing player in the British economy and its money is desperately needed, I suspect. Is there any sense that this, because it's somebody who comes from a, you know, um, a country, the might of Britain, that this has some sort of a greater impact than, than the other deaths that we've seen, Sean, or your sense of um, where this can or will go from now in the lead into the World Cup? Uh, I, I don't think it'll make much difference here. You know, like I said, the foreign officers have closed the file here. They're, they're more interested in maintaining good relations with Qatar. Um, what I'd like to see is more uh, a response from the sporting world. You know, um, I see people like Gary Lineker who tweet all the time about social justice issues and, and campaigns and things. Never seems to mention Qatar and what happens in Qatar. I see Michael Sheen giving. Uh, stirring speeches to the Welsh rugby team, and and, and he's a pretty left wing uh, uh, character in in his political uh, leanings, but never seems to mention the human rights abuses in Qatar. And I think it's down to people like that to make a noise about what's happening in Qatar and try and enforce change. You know, not David Beckham pocketing a few millions to make a promotional video for the country. 
you the podcast of uh, uh, of the story is available as well if people want to go and download it and I would recommend that they do you spoke to Mark Bennett's widow you spoke to his parents as part of the reporting as well there's a human uh, horrific toll out of this that isn't just a number there is and, and of course the people we didn't interview and, and, and don't really focus on it Mark had three children you know he's got kids who are growing up without his guiding hand now um and it seems to be simply because he, he, he tried to change jobs. And, and that seems barbaric. You know? Um, you know, whether he took his own life or whether he was murdered, uh, there's no doubt that what happened to him in detention in Qatar had, had a huge influence on the end of his life. Sean, thanks for taking the call this morning. Sean O'Neill, senior writer with The Times, bringing us the details of that uh, pretty horrific story in relation to Mark Bennett. And we shall continue to bring you those stories as we uh, lead into the World Cup. Um, and there are plenty of them out there. It is uh, 8.43. You're watching OTB AM and we've loads still to come. We're going to uh, catch up with Alan Quinlan in just a little bit to talk all things rugby to him, including, I see, a story in the back page of the Irish Daily Mail this morning that uh, John Cooney, it appears, um, could be on his way to Scotland play for Scotland in the World Cup could you believe it uh, he has uh, Scottish lineage and hasn't played for Ireland obviously for a couple of years and uh, seems to have by his own account let go of that ambition and maybe he'll end up at Scotland whether he actually get into the team there who knows certainly you would feel that uh, you know player of his quality and when he's in form you could easily see him in the 23 so um, we'll see we'll get Quinny's thoughts on that as well as the um, unfolding events in relation to the case that's been brought to the High Court in relation to the IRFU and three former Ireland rugby players former Irish rugby players who um, are um, uh, taking that case to the courts in relation to concussions um, picked up during the course of their careers so that's to come uh, and we'll talk as well to Shen's been talking to Richie Fitzgerald he's Ireland's first pro surfer and has just written a book so we'll get uh, that to you before we're out today as well and we've loads of comments coming in as well so do keep them coming into us whether um, yeah whatever it is about we were having a conversation at the top of the show in relation to who the most charismatic manager of all time in Irish sport was the criteria was very simple although our contributors didn't fully um, you know understand the assignment uh, Brian Kerr says uh, Rick Jagger good morning to you Rick uh, Brian Kerr most charismatic by a country mile everyone else is just a pretender I mean I think there is a case for that and definitely deserves uh, a mention for it as well and we have a few others uh, Brian Cody says Jerry, Ban- Jerry Barron good morning to you Jerry um and I'm just not sure, like, Brian, obviously, unbelievable success. I'd have Mickey Hart almost in that uh, uh, line as well, and maybe to a lesser degree, Jim Gavin, like, unbelievable success, and obviously were able to hold a room and hold a team um, for as long as they did. Charisma, though, is just something else. It's a little bit intangible, isn't it, Colm? Yeah, you're not 100% convinced of that one. And they're not from Cork, so it means they're not getting on the list. That's that's how we that's how we do things around here. It's a quarter to nine, and as I said, you are watching out to be AM. Uh, we're past the halfway point of uh, this year's AFLW season. Plenty of Irish players making waves in the competition so far. Among the Irish contingent down under is the uh, Tipperary star Ashling McCarthy, enjoying her third season at the West Coast Eagles, and she's been speaking to her own Ashling O'Reilly about the rigours of the AFLW season. So what is your training schedule like each week? Um, we're actually one of the really lucky um, teams this year that we actually transitioned into doing a one full day session. Um, so we have the luxury, I guess, with our list that they're quite young. So a lot of the girls are just out of school um, or else there's girls like in my situation that either are working part time or um, don't work and football is their number one. So um during the off season, we train maybe five days a week. And on a Wednesday, we were in the club 
like literally all day. So we do a gym session, a field session, um, and our um, education with our psychologist, which I found really good this year as well. Um, and then you could do meetings with your coaches and like ice baths and stuff like that. So I found this year the transition into more full time um, really helped. Um, and we have a similar kind of session on a Saturday as well. And then that gets taken back then when the season's on. So at the minute, it's a Monday evening. We have review and training. Um, Wednesday, we still have that day session. And then depending on when we travel, we might have a Thursday session. But obviously today we traveled, we'll play tomorrow and we'll fly back Saturday. So yeah, it just depends on games. They've come thick and fast at the minute. Um, but yeah, life at the minute is probably just completely football. Um, and then just spend some time outside with like friends that don't play football as well, which is nice to get that balance. Oh, absolutely. And it sounds like you you don't have much time for, for anything else. Do do some of the girls work alongside playing also? Yeah, so um RLC is quite young, so there's actually some girls still doing their leaving search. Okay. Um, like one of our number one draft pick is seventeen, Ella Roberts. So um a, an exceptional player, but it's yeah, it's crazy they're they're still in school. And then like our captain um works as a firefighter. So she was actually on call last night and then flew over with us today. Um there's a few teachers, um, physios, occupational therapists, but maybe half our list um is not like easy to studying or just finish school. So it gives us that luxury of being able to be a bit more full time. And then a lot of girls are kind of just working part time maybe as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the league is still in a place where girls, their number one might be their career outside of footy, um, but it's definitely going in the direction of transitioning into more full time. But I think it will be another few years, but it's, it's going in a really good direction. This year there was a new, um, CBA new pay and there's like a 94% pay increase which is huge and it will definitely help a lot of Irish players as well that came out um so yeah I think the league is going in in the right direction and so for you then you don't work alongside you're okay to just go and and play professionally full-time um yeah so like at the start when I look back I don't actually know how I survived when I first got drafted in 2018 um but at the minute yeah I'm able to um, just live off my football but I also just to have balance with life I um, work in the community department for like a couple of days a week so go to schools do some clinics um, might travel up to like different aboriginal communities and just help them out with footy and stuff like that so that's more so just to um, obviously it's a financial help but it's more to get that balance and ensure that you're doing stuff outside of football and then I'm doing my own kind of study as well so I just did Pilates accreditation exams um during the week too so yeah just trying to make sure that you're not like fully um thinking about football all the time and that you have something else going on and I think that's something I've definitely learned over the last couple of seasons when I've got injured that football can get taken away from you so quick so it's really important that you have not all your eggs in that one basket I guess oh that's amazing oh that's that's great and you get to see a lot of Australia as well if you're traveling around so that's brilliant um, I was watching the the fearless the inside story of the the FLW on Disney Plus. Um, it's a brilliant watch. It's so well done, and I think what struck me about it was just like the pure passion, the drive, like the commitment from the players. And um, like this is everything to want to win this championship. And I knew that, of course, I know with professional sport. But when you watch it and you actually get to see it, you're like, 
you're taken back by it. You're taken back by just, as I said, the, the pure commitment of it all and the passion of it all. So like just to explain to people, I suppose, here at home, like what it means inside that dressing room, what it's like, like it's, it's very lively. It's quite different, I would think, to uh, a GA dressing room. Yeah, um, the vibes are very different. Um, I think if a GA coach walked into our dressing room sometimes before the game and saw some of the girls dancing around, um, <laughs> yeah. they'd tell them to switch on and focus. But um, that's something I think um, with our psychologist we actually worked on. We had these little bo- um, whiteboards on our locker and we write like on it how we like to prepare. So like for me, I have kind of just like to do a bit of a kick. I'm kind of quiet. I just like get a bit nervous, do my own thing. And then other girls are like, I like to have like a rave and turn up the speakers and do whatever. So I think it's important that we all respect um, each other's preparation, but it is a very different vibe, but um, it is kind of the same passion, obviously, as winning All-Ireland. But I think Gaelic has a different feel to it, obviously, because it's part of where you're from too. So um, it's hard to kind of, I suppose compare the two, they're quite different, but at the end of the day, um, to win silverware is ultimate goal. And um I think just how much people give up here as well to make their career in AFLW, like obviously at the minute it's improving, but like seven seasons ago, um, the amount of hours that girls would have had to put in and have full time jobs on the side is, you know, it's inspiring and a lot of those girls are pioneers for where this competition is going and the pathway that they're actually allowing young girls to have. So I think some of those girls like Daisy Pierce, Alicia Eva, and those kind of names that you would have seen in um, Disney Plus, um, they're the people that are have made that pathway now for young girls because, and even Chelsea Randall speaks on that about how she was bullied when she was like eight or nine because she had to go play with the boys and they didn't want her to play. And now she's one of the greatest AFLW players and um, has three premierships to her name so I think there's a lot of inspiring stories and if anyone has Disney Plus I definitely would recommend to watch and even get an insight to Sarah Rose life with Collingwood and um, Breed Stack as well so um, it's nice to see the Irish girls get um, in it as well. Yeah, it's it's brilliant to see, and to as you said, where it's actually came from to the place it's in now, and it's probably similar to home in a way that we've seen so much growth in the LGFA, and it's brilliant to see. But there is a way to go, and I think that is quite similar, maybe as well with the AFLW. Like I was looking at a AFLPA reports. It was, it's only out. I don't know if you'd seen it, but it was just saying that like 42% of the players say that they're being required to undertake like unpaid sessions on a weekly set on a weekly basis and just the respect levels within the game and compared to men's things like that. So is it right in saying that there is a way to go uh, in the AFLW that it's not fully there yet? Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, there there is a way to go, and it's about bridging that gap. But I think when you do look back at where it's come from, it it has come on leaps and bounds. And um, but I do think you know, like some of the comments on social media about the standard of the game and all that. Like, I don't think those people that write those comments realize that some of those girls have come straight from like a twelve hour shift as a nurse, and then they have to try train and then perform to to the levels that um the men do when when they have all the time in the world to to train their bodies and recover. So it's a similar scenario, I suppose, to the, to the game at home where the women's game is at, that, you know, people at home have to work and then go to county training and play games at the weekend. It's it's still similar to that, but I think the girls that are leaving school probably have the luxury of being able to be paid at a level where 
they can focus fully on um, football and maybe study and football will probably be their number one for the for the next few years. So um, I think it's definitely going in the right direction, but um, there still is still is a long way to go. Yeah, and it's great to see the strides that it is making at the moment. And there is about 22 players, 22 Irish players who are playing at the minute in the AFLW. It, it's it's great to see. It's a huge opportunity to play professional sport. And I know a lot of you would have liked to have played county football here at home as well. But just with the new schedule of the AFLW, it looks like that's not going to be possible going forward. So I suppose you can't help but wonder, you know, is this going to affect the LJV? the LGFA season here at home and I suppose not having some of the best players playing in it. Do you feel that it could affect the game here? Um, I think, to be honest, like, I wouldn't be scared that there's going to be this mass exodus from um, ladies football at home. Like I think it's a very individual thing um, to come out here and play and give that up. Um, I guess it might become a 12-1 thing as well. So there's that homesickness side of things that might come in that often the men and even Connor McKenna and stuff have spoken about previously as well. So that's something that didn't really factor because we'd be six months here and then six months at home. Um, but yeah, look, I think it is a great opportunity for girls at home. Um, obviously, what I've spoken about, how the game here is growing and obviously the financial situation is a lot better as well. Um but I think, you know, it'll be very individual and I don't think it'll be possible to play both at, anymore. Um, so a lot of girls might prefer to stay at home and play Gaelic. And it's also career based. You know, people could be making their career in Ireland and can't leave that too. So I think it will be very um, multifactorial. And, and I don't think that the LGFA should be worried about a mass exodus. But I do think that some of the best players will be poached and asked to come out Um but again, it's up to themselves. But a lot of the young players coming up here in Australia now, like the 18-year-olds have played since they're five or six and they're elite. Like Ella Roberts is one of our best players and she's 17 years old. So maybe that need for Irish players will diminish a little bit as well. But um, yeah, I think the same as the men's, there's always those very athletic and talented players that are going to be approached. And um, that's the same with all sports. It's the same with soccer and rugby as well. So um, yeah, I don't think we're too worried, but it, it is a good opportunity. And for you personally, if there was a case that you could do both, would you like to do both still? Or do you feel you need to immerse yourself in one? Um, in an ideal world, I'd love to do both. Um, getting to represent Tipperary, I've had my best football memories in a Tipperary jersey and played like they're my best friends as well. But um, unfortunately, at the minute, I just think the demand to play AFL at the, the highest level and I think where the CBA has gone to and um, the hours that you're contracted for um, I don't think it's possible and I don't think it's fair um, it's my job now and it's my professional contract that I have to abide by and um, I don't think it's really fair if I kind of ask to to come home in the middle of that so I'm signed again for next year for West Coast but I think it's a decision then I'll have to make of where's my career going is it physio and Gaelic is what I want to do or is it AFLW for the next few years and try and make a career out of that. But again, sport is so transient, different things happen, injury um, and all that. So I won't kind of make my decision too quick, but um, I think at the minute I'm just going to focus on the next five rounds anyway, first with West Coast and then um, go from there. But um, yeah, I do misrepresent Tipperary, but at the minute, I guess where AFL is, there's just too much demands um, to play both. 
well, it's exciting times at the end of that, that's for sure. And fitness wise, does playing county football compare at all? Is there much difference? Um, yeah, I think to be honest, um, it's a different type of fitness. Um, so I think with Gaelic, it's a lot more like sprint, um, repeat efforts. The game flows a lot more. Um, and then with AFL, with my position anyway, like I've had to do a lot of gym work. So I probably put on a lot more muscle in the last few months. So I'm a bit probably bigger than I would be if I was playing Gaelic. Um, but I need to be strong in those positions because I come up against girls that are stronger than me. Um, and then I think the running that we did in the preseason is a lot more long distance. Um, so we might do like 500 meter runs, 250 meter runs, which is kind of different to the training that we do um, at Gaelic. So it's kind of that kind of more longer um, but running, but like the oval here is huge. So there's a lot of ground to cover and you kind of do it at a bit more of a slower pace, I guess, than quicker up and down the ground in Gaelic. Um, so I'm not really sure. I actually might chat to my SNC about and see if there are any comparisons of like the demands, I guess, on the body, but I do find that the training is is quite different, and even I'm in the gym a lot more for AFL than I would be for a gala football. Yep, just from watching it, it looks like the hits that you take, you need to have your body ready. Um, I know that GA can be physical, but I feel like the AFLW is is on a complete different level. If you could transfer one rule from the AFLW into the LGFA, what would it be? Um. From AFL to LGFA? Yeah. Um, Is there something you'd like to bring in to, to the LGFA? Even just a little bit of the physicality, I suppose, like even just a hip and shoulder bump. Um, obviously, the physicality in AFLW is a lot more than that. You can wrap people up in tackles. But I think if you could just do like a side bump shoulder um, to kind of get the ball and just be able to use your strength. And I know um, that's something that's been brought up this year a lot. And um, I think Vicky Wall has spoken out about it too. But um I think the amount of S&C that you do these days, um, you're not really allowed to utilize that um, when it comes to game day. Um, so I think, you know, if, if someone's in the gym, um, they should be able to show the rewards, I guess, on the field. And um, the Camogie have brought in a bit more physicality too. So I think um, the LGFA probably should look at that, um, especially because S&C and that is going to just continue to grow. And um, I think girls need to just be able to use their strengths. It is just gone nine o'clock. It's OTBM. AM. You're watching us here live every uh, weekday morning from half past seven. And that was Ashling and Ashling. And you can check out the full piece if you just came in at the end of it there up on our YouTube channel in just a little bit. Colm, you're back with us. Adrian, what's the story? Uh, loads of comments coming into us uh, in relation to the various topics that we've had on the go this morning. One of them in relation to the uh, great, the most charismatic yeah. Irish manager of all time. Danny Mack says, Richie Bennis, no titles, but Armoran, Babs and Thurlis and Tip Blewett and Big Dan got none, uh, got none quote all in one year. Hilarious. Uh, lost that one a little bit. But Richie Bennis is a good shout. Hugely charismatic. And Dan, of course. Um, Mickey Whelan, says Michael on YouTube, was the charisma behind the dub success. Mm-hmm. Uh, Noel Butler, Liam Griffin is a shout. Most charismatic oh, yeah. manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Brian Cody, says Jerry Bar- Barron. Brian yeah. Cody, yeah, Cody was in my, about fourth or fifth choice. Yeah. I can't deny his charisma. Like, you wouldn't think of... Um, Cody with Chris in the traditional sense of the word but he did have a kind of underlying uh, magnetism to him or maybe that's just the 24 the years of incredible success of the word well, okay so for me well, I would say would that your, your uh, way of getting out of saying that he doesn't have charisma no I, I literally just told you uh, he'd be my fourth or fifth choice right mm. so 
he is a kind of uh, underlying kind of yeah there's kind of something intangible about him for, for me charisma would be like the more Davy Fitz side of things where you can't keep your eyes off him he's energetic and full of vigour and energy You'd whereas say that about Cody, Cody I would say Cody has a kind of an underlying intensity to him but can't keep your eyes off him too because he's so he actually gives away or he gave away so little in interviews pre and post match but you still tuned in and I suppose it's all um, tailored with his success like 24 years of brilliance well largely brilliance wit in the funny sense you don't see that often enough like the, no. we spoke earlier on about the documentaries so all the people that you would have seen behind the scenes like Body and all those others yeah, yeah, yeah. and maybe that existed behind and it didn't really exist behind the scenes really you listen to any of the players that I've ever played under them that wasn't really a factor I think you have to have that it's one of those intangibles yeah definitely um, but I suppose you didn't see much of the wit but I feel like there's a lot of humour there and we didn't get to see it and that's actually another reason why I really liked them so he was very very close to my top three yeah. Um, Terry Kelly says love him or hate him and plenty do either way Roddy Collins has to be on the list he was on mine Terry Isolt good morning to you Isolt a wonderful segment listening to talk of Mikko and Potty I'm not sure where it is as she includes a picture of uh, the late Potty O'Shea but um, a picture of his adoring family it, rather than having a picture of his adoring family in his office my dad has all sports pictures including a framed one of the two greats and uh, a couple of Kerry legends there Enda Lynch uh, shared a great picture of the great Mick O'Dwyer yeah. so many of those great pictures oh, of him yeah. from back great in the day documentary a few years ago on him yeah. uh, Shifty Lad should Joe Schmidt be on the charismatic manager list I would also agree with Sean Boylan it's uh, worth not being well just to go up and let him help you in his clinic ah Jesus he's so intense but A1 yeah yeah like I wouldn't um, mix up success with charisma they're two different things I would say so there's a lot of managers yeah, out no there agree. who have brilliant CV but I wouldn't have him in that mould or certainly outworld outwardly like that you're thinking um, sometimes you're looking at these managers and they give so little away you're thinking jeez mm. how do they inspire dressing room for years on end but obviously they that, that actually is itself very interesting because mm. obviously they have a totally different side to them you feel that they don't give it away back, to yeah. the people and like a lot of respect for that too actually withholding I mean I know from a media perspective we want the gold like we want great content all the time and we want people saying outlandish stuff but um, there's a, a definitely uh, a shameless respect for those who keep it close to their chest, even if it's not great for us. Conor Pratt says if we're go- asks if we're going to talk about the Dolphins quarterback uh, getting another yeah. head, re- head injury last night casts a dark shadow over the NFL. We will in just a moment. Uh, Bobby Dwyer says after two weeks of international football, I finally think Spurs are getting some coverage. And then bang, you start with England. Uh, we had to, and like yeah, I was surprised he started with England. Huge. Nah, but he's I like was, uh, he's, he is close, as I said to him on the record, being close to Gareth Southgate. Yeah. Was the, the only you couldn't that was the only place to start. No, I'd listen. I would listen to Martin on England all day, because they're at such a breaking point, aren't they? Mm-hmm. It could go either way. Like mm-hmm. it really could. It's actually also mad to think that England's next game is the first game of the World Cup. But yeah. such is the schedule. There's no room for any warm ups. Yeah, mad, this mad. year comparison I liked the '96 year comparison. Yeah, yeah, was, that was good. Well done. I was, I was Clip that. Spurs three one says Bobby. By the way, this weekend, Sun to score a third late on when it opens up, and then twenty years ago. Uh, is the name of this person on YouTube. Uh, Lipton has brilliantly sucked the historical Arsenal banter out of you guys as of late. Thank you for that, sir. They needed it badly. <laughs> I saw that, yeah. Is that just because we've yeah, lost yeah. Shane and he was our source of all things Arsenal? Well, Kathleen's replaced uh, oh, Shane true, as yeah. the resident Arsenal fan. Yeah, that's yeah. true. More of that. That you? Well, what are your weekend plans there? I'm trying to get tickets for Arctic Monkeys here. Are you? When are they playing? Next, uh, next summer. 
All right. <laughs> I thought they were on this weekend, and you were trying to get a couple of WhatsApp your, group flying here. Right. Uh, go on. We better. We better drive on. on we'll drive on. Drive on. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for coming in. Right. Here's what's happening on OTB Sports Radio over the course of the day. Half past eleven is the football kickoff with Ger, Phil, and David Connolly today. Uh, Jason Sherlock will be the subject of OTB Gold from one. Uh, Leitrim is the all thirty-two thousand of them. Uh, the subject of the Mount Rushmore uh, from three o'clock today at four. It's John Caulfield. Um, who contributed to our Roscommon, Matt Rushmore, in a, mm-hmm. possibly the best one of the whole lot of them, wasn't it? Pretty good. Seven cake. Yeah. Uh, team uh, 33, League of Ireland legend from four today. Chris Waddle is uh, ought to be goal from six and tomorrow off the ball Saturday with JD chatting to world Rowing champion Paula Donovan, not on Cork's Matt Rushmore <laughs> and the AFLW star Vicky Wall. Plus, we're going to have the Football Saturday crew will uh, react to the North London derby, of course, as well, looking ahead to the Manchester derby and uh, we'll also be on hand to recap the Republic of Ireland's games from the last week. All right, you're watching Watching uh, OTB AM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. You can follow OTB across all our social channels. Subscribe to the OTB Podcast Network for all the best and the latest in sports content. We're going to be back after these ads. Alan Quinlan on Irish Rugby. OTB AM. All right, eight minutes past nine. You're watching OTB AM and we're going to turn our attention to rugby. But I do want to give you some context just before that about a story emerging from the US last night. And this uh, relates to uh, the Miami Dolphins up against the Bengals and um, quarterback Tui uh, Tagovailoa, who was hospitalised uh, in that game. He was chased down and thrown to the turf by the Bengals' Josh Tupu in the first half. He remained down for more than seven minutes before being taken to hospital with reported head and neck injuries and the Dolphins later said that they expect him to be discharged uh, and fly home with his team but of course it does again shine a spotlight particularly in NFL uh, in relation to the health and safety of their players it obviously uh, directly relates to a story that has emerged here this week in relation to three former Irish rugby players who'd lodged high court proceedings against uh, the IRFU World Rugby in the provinces uh, as well, RFU uh, putting out a statement yesterday saying the player welfare is paramount. Uh, people have been moved by the stories, they say, constantly reviewing player safety protocols and that they won't be commenting again, of course, as it's all subdued to say for now. Alan Quinlan, good morning to you. Morning, Adrian. How are you? Good. First thoughts, obviously, on the back of all of that, uh, particularly in relation to the Irish players and uh, first thoughts for the players and their families. We don't yet know the extent as to uh, how they're exactly uh, suffering with this. Yeah, there's obviously no kind of statements other than that um, they're taking legal proceedings against um, World Rugby RFU and, and some of the provincial teams that they played for. So um, it's pretty alarming again to see it. Um, obviously, um, there's been a lot of talk about um, some of the English players, Welsh players who, um, and this has probably gathered momentum in the last probably 18 months, uh, 12 to 18 months about issues players are having off the field. Um, again, it's sad to see it. Um, and as you say, you know, your concern is there for the players and and how they're feeling and what they're going through and what kind of symptoms they have. We don't have any kind of detailed explanation or interviews from, from the three three players, well, ju- who, three on, Irish players. Just on that, Quinny, yeah, so it's like David Corkery, uh, Declan Fitzpatrick and Ben Marshall are the three players that are involved and I did see there was a piece with uh, David Corkery and Rugby Pass from a few months ago where he talked about being worried about headaches. He said, when I played, I had no respect for my body. I got knocked out. I woke up and a few se- few seconds later I was playing again. That's not right, he says. That's not the way it should have been. And it just jumped out of me as to be within uh, with contrast to the statement from the RFU saying that player welfare is paramount. 
and he would have been in your vintage, David Corkery. Was it always paramount? Um, no, it wasn't probably always paramount to the point that um, you had the HIA and a lot of changes have happened in recent years. And, you know, we've, I've, I've, we can all remember seeing players getting heavy knocks and kind of returning to the field. And it's a natural inclination for players to, to go back out there. I think um, what's happened in re- recent years has been very, um, very, very much welcomed. Um, and I always speak about this and say, well, you know, at the top level, they're still not getting it completely right. But, you know, there's independent doctors looking at players and taking them off the field. We saw the one with Jeremy Lockman in the, the Maori game in, um, at the start of July in the New Zealand tour. How he was allowed to stay on was... was um, you know, was wrong. Uh, the player was clearly um, concussed and took a heavy knock, uh, wobbled on his feet a little bit and ends up playing some more minutes in the game. Um, he was taken off by the Irish management, but um, it is, it's not, it's far from perfect, you know, and, and I obviously played when you get those heavy knocks and you kind of get the magic sponge or a bit of water and dust yourself off and go again. So, um and you'd have had no idea, Quinny, at that time. Like there was no, it's, I don't want to be putting words in your mouth. It doesn't appear that there was any support in the background to say that's not the smartest thing. At that time, it was almost a badge of honour that you would get the knock and get up and get on with it. Yeah, it was, I suppose. And um, uh, that that happened. It happened regularly. It happened um, pretty much. <laughs> if the player could dust himself down and, and feels he could carry on, you know, they went back in the field. Of course, we all had doctors and medical people who would check you. But um, obviously, this is something that has really kind of uh, is a real concern for people and has been in the last number of years, given the physicality of players, um, the conditioning of them, the, you know, the head high tackles and, and the zero tolerance around that were, were was brought in a number of years ago to try and, reduce the impacts, you know, shoulder charges to, to, to head and neck areas are, are, you know, prohibited and, uh, you know, not accepted in the game now. And there's a lot of frustration. Sometimes you hear, you read comments online of the game has gone soft and all that, but the game has not gone soft. I think whatever happened in the past, Adrian, is out of my control, your control, and, and maybe, you know different unions and world rugby but I think the changes are very positive that doesn't fix the solution for players who played in that era and I did play with David Corkery and David David would have been somebody who had no regard for you know his his body as regard that's a very kind of probably wrong statement in the that's situation what he says himself, made, but yeah. yeah but he was someone who just was so physical and just piled into everything and was was as hard as nails uh, and let's hope it's okay. he's okay. I don't know where this is all going to end up. Um, there's part of me thinks, you know, for any of the players who are suing different unions or world rugby, you know, we all kind of, uh, we all signed up to a physical game. And is there liability there? I don't know. Um, you know, it's it's certainly setting a precedent in the game. We've seen probably a lot of stuff that's happened in, in, in uh, NFL over the years where, there has been cases and awards of money for for different players who struggled with um, with different sorts of um, you know trauma after playing the game with head knocks and injuries and depression and mental health problems, dementia, all that kind of stuff. But it's certainly concerning. But 
I keep going back to, you know, there has been a, a number of positive changes in the game in recent years, but it's still a worry and a concern. And, mm. um, you know, I, I don't know where these cases are going to end up and who's liable and who's not liable, but no, and it's, it's obviously, obviously worrying for, for the families and the players if, if they are being, if they are affected and, and um, going through tough situations from it. Yeah, correct. And uh, that is definitely where your where your thoughts turn to in the first instance. And um, obviously the element of it all being subdued to say, and uh, we will see how all that aspect of it plays out. Can I just ask you one last one? In terms of, like, it's almost been surprising because the cases have been spoken about, there's so many of them high-profile cases that have emerged generally in relation to English and Welsh players and Scottish players. It's been less so over here. This is the first time, really, that we've had it. It's almost been surprising in some ways that it's taken so long. Is there much chatter about it um, behind the scenes with the with the rugby community that would have come up uh, through your vintage, Quinny? Not really, to be honest, Adrian. Um, that's why I didn't know about Corks, to be honest, you know. So I, that's why I was a surprise. I didn't see that article and I didn't, you know, I, I remember Declan Fitzpatrick having to retire and, you know, I remember reading about that. Um, I knew Declan pretty well. He was in Irish squads when I was there. Um, I didn't know about Ben Marshall either. Um, so there's not a, there's not a lot of talk, you know. If you're asking, is there talk between you know the Monster WhatsApp group, former players? No, I haven't heard that. Mm. Uh, any talk about it? I think there's been conversations of, you know, in in people in general in the public might have mentioned it to me, you know, when some of the articles were on the papers about um, the English and, and and Welsh players in the last year or two, um, just in passing, you know, that um it's a concern and it's a worry and and it's something that is a concern and a worry but no real chatter amongst amongst our, our you know our, my vintage really uh, but everybody's conscious and aware of it and people are a little bit afraid of it as well because um you don't want to comment on it and kind of you know we all kind of love the game and know it's very physical there's part of me thinks you know it's a physical game we all knew that going into the game but the question is then could more have been done throughout that period to you know if the HIAs were there back in the 90s um, would it have made a big difference it's all down to resources and, and finances and protocols and all this kind of stuff um, it's a little bit like mental health the stigma around mental health you know positive changes that have happened in recent years you know there's similarities in, in saying that you know, someone speaking out about their mental health is seen as a weakness, uh, perceived as a weakness where you get a head knock in a match and you kind of go off and it's a big game and your teammates are looking around, you know, mm. they visually can't see blood or they can't see a broken bone. Um, why isn't that player coming back on the field? And the perception uh, is that the player does come back on the field and that's the way it was. Mm. And it probably was, it wasn't right. No, well, exactly, and that's the case that the three players will make and that others have made um, in great depth, obviously, across the water as well, that there should have been more information about it. Obviously, science, the scientific advances weren't where they're at uh, now, and uh, that conversation continues, but um, we'll see exactly how it all plays out. Not entirely unrelated, the Bundyaki affair, obviously, from South Africa last weekend, where he gets red carded and he's since picked up an eight-week ban. And the context of that, obviously, is the general conversation about this exact topic and the impact of of, um, tackles like that on players. Players, your view on the eight-week ban? Um, well, it's 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 a lengthy ban, isn't it? And it's a costly one because um, and it's a costly one. 
particularly for Connacht first, but then for Ireland as well in November. Um, where, but I suppose I, I I think it's the reaction that that kind of makes it worse for him and, and takes away a little bit of sympathy from some people. I do feel for him a little bit. Um, I think he's had a couple of sending offs. You know, the one Billy Bonapola against England. Um, I think that's unlucky. Uh, I think the one at the World Cup, um, again, the player dips in against Samoa. It's unlucky. Uh, but you've got to change behaviours. Their tackle situations. Um, and he does tackle very hard and he's very physical. But the one last week, obviously, again, <clears throat> it's, a, it's a split moment decision where a player is kind of locked onto the ball. But you've just got to be careful. That's just the reality. And it goes back to the debate about you know, people saying the game, sending offs or ruining the game. And you get a lot of that in the Southern Hemisphere when you see players getting sent off in, in, in Tri-Nations or big test matches in the last couple of years. Um, they, they don't agree with it and it should be a 20-minute uh, red card scenario. I don't agree with that either. But players have got to change their behaviours right across the board with the high tackles and the impacts. And particularly the impact the player there is going to, Stormers player is going to pinch the ball or get a, a penalty. So Bundiaki, you know, probably knows no other way there but just try and get him out of there as quick as he can. He makes contact with the player. It's reckless. I don't think there's an intent to hurt the player. That player now is out for a period of time. And months. We just, months, yeah. And it's, it's, um, and that's the, the price. Look at the Darcy Swain incident a few weeks ago where Quinn Tupaya. He's out for nine months, you know. Darcy Swain gets six weeks. Like, that's, what, what, that, I don't it, agree with that. On the specifics of the Aki situation, is there anything you can do about that other than either ban Jackling entirely or just change it so significantly away from where it's at at the minute? Is there any other solution to that? Because I don't know, because I see a lot of comments online about, uh, you know, ban the Jackal and stuff. Well, you'll never get the ball back from the opposition then unless they drop it. Is there any way to change it in your experience or from looking at it over the last few years? Yeah, I think if you, if you, if you maybe had a situation where the first player has got to step over the rock and not play the ball and the second guy can have a go because obviously then if you have one player that steps over that situation and tries to counter rock that maybe uh, the second guy will be a little bit more protected because there'll be some players in front of him and you won't have that kind of impact from 20 yards. I don't know, but obviously this is something that's going to come up about this, Jackal, because we've seen a lot of injuries. Look at Gavin Coombs last year with the Devon Toner one against Leinster. Absolutely no intention for Devon Toner to injure Gavin Coombs, but it's a side entry that wasn't pick up, picked up. Dan Levy a couple of years ago, his career is over because of that side entry. So you're talking about taking the impact away from the back of the head and neck area and then you know, we would have practiced a lot of lifting the leg and, and we call it the lever, get get in under that leg. But if you're coming in at that side angle and trying to get the player a little bit side on, your entry point is supposed to be square. You're, you're, you're risking lower limb injuries for players. So it's it's something that probably needs to be looked at. But ultimately, the simplest way of, of preventing this is you can't charge in from that distance and drop your shoulder into the back of a player's head or neck. And that's just the reality of it. Mm. So we don't see those sort of impacts um, very, very often. And they're policed very well. And, um, you know, so 
I just think you you go back to the Peter Mahoney one against Wales and a few years ago, and you know he makes contact with Thomas Francis, but it's not one of those ones where you're charging from a big distance, and it's a red card, and he got three week ban for it. Um, I saw someone who making a comment. Well, Bundyaki shouldn't be getting this. You know, this ban is pretty severe. He deserves it, but Peter Mahoney didn't get it a few years ago. They're different incidents, and I think because obviously. You know, he has had two kind of situations with referees in the last couple of years. One against Ian Davies in 2017, where he questioned his decisions during the game and after the game. He got a three-match three, three match ban for that. He had one last year with Matthew Reynal against against Leicester, where you know he questioned Matthew Reynal when when uh, you know, Samaki scored right at the end of the game, the 79th minute, to win the game for Leicester. It looked like he possibly was in touch. The crowd were going mad. And, you know, he had words with Matthew Renal and obviously he apologised after that. Mm. I, I just think Bowden Bunby has got to be careful. I think he's a brilliant fella. He's emotional and he sometimes has got to control that emotion. And I don't think there was any intention to go in and hurt him. The intention last week is a split decision of get the player out of there. Um, we're after making a line break here. It has to stop, though. And it's the same. I hope I'm making a point, Adrian. It's the same thing with players picking and go around the fringes. You just cannot be going with that shoulder kind of impact anymore. Mm. Players running at you, you cannot be. The danger here is that last impact, if you get that wrong, that little surge forward, if you're going to try to put in a big tackle on someone, you've got it. you're in risky territory. You've got to nearly accept the tackle or else wrap a little bit more, um, yeah. particularly on the pick and goes. The clean-outs, he's got to try and s- s- kind of get his hands over the back of the player and flip him over. And that's it's just about behaviours. And it's a shame for him, uh, but it's not a surprise that it's gone to, you know, he was put in the higher entry point and was reduced down and then brought back up again for, you know, for, for previous um uh, disciplinary issues yeah. and I feel for him because you know he's a good player but we've got again it's kind of like the head injury stuff there's a there's a player in, in from the Stormers who's out for a number of months um, and this is an important part of protecting players in the game and players behaviours have just got to change um, we want to look at the obviously the games this weekend I the Leinster Ulster game tonight obviously is a game that we'll focus on but I have to go to the back page of the Irish Daily Mail this morning an exclusive by Rory Keane here and definitely uh, caught me on the hop a little bit Scotland switch on horizon for Ulster's Cooney he asks this is uh, John Cooney um, Ireland international but not that recently not by his own choosing but not by his own ambition he says recently that uh, it's sort of moved off the radar a bit for him which is understandable it's been a couple of years since his last cap his dad is from Glasgow Scott Johnson had approached him 10 years ago to go and play for Scotland. Obviously, the Ireland opportunities came up in the meantime, and that was preference at that time. But he would soon be eligible, indeed, uh, 32 years of age, before the uh, World Cup next year, could be uh, in a Scotland shirt. It's amazing, isn't it? It's something that, uh, again, I'm not sure if it would be for me, but it's an individual preference. Um, I think that, obviously... You know, he's 30, John Cooney's 32. There's a frustration there probably that he has more caps. I think he probably should have more caps and more opportunities. Um, and there's an opportunity now to probably go to a World Cup with Scotland. I'm not sure what the Scottish players would think or Scottish scrum halves coming through if, if, if John Cooney went. Well, to, he's not going to oust Ali Price anyway, Quinny, anyway, right? Like that's the first pick and then you're hoping to get into a squad after that. 
Yeah, and, and I'm not really sure of, of there's a couple of young scrum halves there in Scotland, but mm. it's um it's it's an opportunity and another part of me thinks why not? You know, it's um I know it would be strange seeing him in a Scottish shirt, but I think a lot of people would would say, well, um, agree with the frustration that he hasn't got more caps here. But he did get some opportunities. He plays very well for Ulster, and he can feel a little bit hard done by. But it would be very strange, obviously, to see him go to a World Cup with Scotland. Whether it'll happen or not, he's eligible in the in the in the new year. Um, there's a lot of debate about the project players, and there has been for a long time. And now these new eligibility rules. Um, you just look at Fekitoa, he's playing for Tonga now. Israel Falau playing for Tonga. Um, it's certainly going to benefit a lot of, um, you know, the the Pacific nations with New Zealand and Australia players who are not playing there. Maybe have played one or two caps before, strengthening them a little bit. But mm-hmm. um, I'm sure Gregor Townsend would take John Clooney. He's a brilliant player and has, you know, showed us last week weekend again how good he can be. He's destined to line out at the Stade de France on October the 7th uh, for the Pool B match, isn't he? Like, it's absolutely written in the stars. There'll be a couple of injuries. It'll be uh, John Cooney against Johnny Sexton in the greatest showdown we never knew we needed. But uh, after their war of words, was it last year? Um, I can. It's definitely it's destined to happen. Come here, they, obviously, Belfast tonight, that um, Sexton included James Ryan, Kelleher, Will Connors all on the Leinster bench. It's a serious-looking um, bench, but should be a tight enough game. Yeah, it's a very strong Leinster side, but you know, I just think uh, the end. I often people again. Uh, I just think the the continuity and selection here, particularly in that Ulster side, both from minimal changes, Leinster strengthened, um, and I think Ulster have played brilliantly. I think you know to score, you know, score five tries against against uh, Connacht in the first game, and then to score seven tries last week over against the Scarlets. They're obviously. You know, flying high, playing really well, um, and you know, a real danger and a threat with the ball. I think, obviously, in the Connacht game, their forwards were very, very dominant. It's going to be a different story against Leinster tonight. Um, you know, with Jack Conan is back with them. He's, it's a big season for someone like Jack Conan. I think he really wants to kind of um, get back to the heights that we saw when he was picked in the Lions tour and the season he had that year. Um, Jason Jenkins has been going well for Leinster. He's, you know, in the first two games, I know it's very yeah. early doors, but, you know, Leinster have scored 12 tries themselves, you know, uh, in their first two games. Um, obviously, there was a lot of mall tries last week against Zebra, but um, that should be a cracker of a game. And Leinster have, also have caused Leinster problems in the last few years, both in Dublin and, you know, in Belfast. So um, it's certainly one to look forward to tonight. Uh, Zebra this weekend for your boys this has to be the game where they start to look a bit more cohesive it has to be but um, just talking about the continuity of the, pre- the Ulster and Leinster you know Munster are probably going to be chopping and changing again they have a number of injuries um, the depth in the squad um, with the 10 players away at the you know in at the Emerging Ireland Tour so it's it's going to be a very very tricky and dangerous game you know Zebra scored five tries against Leinster and they scored five tries against the Sharks last week. So they've shown how dangerous they can be with ball in hand. And, you know, for Munster, it's, they're in a tough place. They're, you know, I think they can get out of it and they will get out of it. Um, but 
this is a tricky one and it's a you know the confidence would have been dented from last week the Graham Rountree was pretty honest in his assessment. So, and the players would have been hurting themselves. So, they've got to get a reaction and try and find a performance and get some bit of confidence back into the group because, you know, they go to Galway next week. And um, I, I sometimes you think, is it is should it be performance driven or or the results? I think Munster have to get a result here. Mm. I think they just got to, and, and I would say maximum five points. They've got to get the five points here. And, um, it's all down to how they start the game and try and minimise the mistakes that we've seen the last couple of weeks. They've got to really fix um, some of those basic errors and problems that they've had. Yeah, very similar story for Connacht, uh, who are at the Bulls tonight. David Hawkshaw, 10, another province under fire. See how they go. Quinny, enjoy the rugby over the weekend. Thanks, million. Cheers. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks a lot. Alan Quinlan of the Red 78. Right, it is uh, half past nine. It's Friday morning and I've enjoyed your company over the last couple of hours um, and uh, whatever it is you are up to over the weekend. Uh, enjoy it. Uh, OTVM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We're back on Monday morning. Ger and Nathan in the hot seats. Samuel Luckhurst of the Manchester Evening News uh, will uh, talk about the Manchester Derby. Ned Manua as well, uh, former Man City uh, player, will be on to talk about Sunday's uh, game. We're going to have reaction to all the weekend rugby. Nathan will bring you a brilliant I've no doubt Gillette Labs performance rankings and much more as well besides. We're going to leave you Ireland's uh, first pro surfer Richie Fitzgerald who's been talking to Shane about his new book Cold Water Eden. Enjoy and have a good weekend. Good luck. Alright you're very welcome back and uh, I've got a book with me in studio this morning. It's called Cold Water Eden by Richie Fitzgerald. Richie uh, for those unfamiliar is uh, a surfing legend a bit of a legend in the Irish surfing community uh, just published this book and uh, Ireland's first ever professional surfer Delighted to say Richie is uh, in studio with me this morning. Richie, good afternoon and good morning. How are you keeping? Thank you very much. I'm keeping really well. Bit of a rainy day in Dublin, but... Well, it suits you. It You're... suits me. I like being wet. Yeah, there's no, there's no wet suits, but um, the, the, the book is, is, is incredible. You can see the, the, the subtitle there, One Man's Pursuit of Ireland's Legendary Waves. Like, this is a subject we don't get into probably often enough on, no. on OTBAM, but... Yeah. Not really. I mean, but surfing is, you know, it's a minority sport in ways, but it's it's mainstream in other ways. You know, you drive anywhere along the coast in Ireland, you see surfers or stand up paddleboarders. So it is a it's a vibrant sport and it it grows every year. And uh, fortunately, I've been in surfing for God nearly 40 years now. So right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've lived a, a complete life in Irish surfing. And I suppose that was the crux of the book, really. It's funny, like you're a Bundoran man, a Donegal man, and and, and the, the, like the, it really comes through the sense of place in the book, like Bundoran and the surfing community up there, and the, I guess the community feel to it really, really adds weight to the book. I think. Yeah, I, I unashamedly love where I'm from. I mean, Bundoran sometimes gets a bad reputation, and rightly so. But it is a, it's a beautiful area. We've magnificent surf, and it'd be wrong to say that I'm just really focusing on Bundoran, that kind of Strand Hill, Bundoran, Rosnaila, those three towns are synonymous with surfing and there's a there's a fantastic surf community there. So, you know, we were kind of the second generation, but the first generation of Bundoran surfers growing up there. So it w- really was a wonderful time. It wasn't all fairy tale and dreams. There was, you know, the hard times as well. But um, I wouldn't swap it for anything. Look, it's funny, I'm looking at the, some of the... When you think back to maybe the 70s and 80s, before all the surfing hype really picked up in Mandoran, like now when you look at the surfing industry in the town, you've got 
uh, if the stats in front of me are correct, six big surf schools, three surf shops, eight surf hostels, surf yoga centres, surf cafes, pubs, restaurants that cater for, for surfing uh, people in clientele as well. So it's really gone from strength to strength. Yeah, it has, Shane. I mean, you, you go to town now, you're going to get the same crowd in Bundoran as you've always had, but there's definitely that kind of ocean-minded crowd. You've got your cool dudes on bikes and blonde hair and drinking eco-coffee and surfing waves. And so it has. It's changed a lot. And it's a, you know, it's a practical uh, industry as well. It employs a lot of people. There's a lot of hostels, as you say, and surf schools. And so it is relevant in the Northwest, but the whole area as well. So it's it's a... It's a good thing to have in the area and it's a good positive image of the place as well. But it's legitimate. The waves are fantastic on the northwest coast. So if the waves weren't good, we wouldn't have it. And really the talking point is the waves at the end of the day. 100%. And, and like some of the waves are just astounding and some of the stories in the book are, are remarkable. And, and terrifying is probably a, a, an accurate word. Like, it, is there a point at which, and I know you probably grew up around this and I know your siblings were probably influencers when it came yes. to getting involved in surfing as well. But at what point do those waves go from terrifying to exciting yeah it's uh, look 99% of people will just do surf lessons in the Hinch Bundoran or Snyder or wherever there's only a tiny less than 1% that will ever pursue waves over 10 feet so you have to have the experience and you have to be that kind of person but really waves over 20 feet get into the terrifying uh, you know that's that's the terrifying level and we went out into waves about 50 feet so you know you just don't go out there half cocked we had a lot of experience and you put in the time the training as you would with any professional sport but it is madness calculated madness but it is pure madness and there's nothing logical about standing on the top of a 50 foot wave and you know belting down a really shallow reef it's violent it's powerful it's awe-inspiring it's terrifying it's all those things you'd imagine and there's no real rationale in it and, you know, self-preservation goes out the window. But you just are one of those people or you're not. And myself and Gabe Davies were one of those or two of those kind of people. But, you know, if you met us on the street, you wouldn't think it. But, yeah, you know, that's, you know, you meet people like that all the time. We never really broadcast it too much until now I'm writing the book. <laughs> Do you have to be an adrenaline junkie? Is, is it like a... Do you know, people say goalkeepers, everyone is a goalkeeper, has a little bit of madness inside them. Is, it, is there something similar in, in, involved in surfing? Do you have to have that little bit of uh, something different, I guess, to, to get involved in I, surfing? I can't speak for everyone, but just for myself, there was kind of, um, not a lot of people were doing it. So that was an attraction to me and the waves were there and no one was surfing them above a certain size. You know, adrenaline junkie gets bandied around a bit, but you are right. You know, you see it on TV and the X Games and all that kind of carry on. And you wouldn't look at me and think I was an, an adrenaline junkie. But yeah, you do have to have that certain, I would say, personality or that certain drive or that want to go out and put your life in danger to surf gigantic waves. And it, I guess it was just in my DNA somehow. I, I love hearing people's origin stories, you know, in, in sport. And we hear a lot of sto uh, stories on this show about how people got involved in, in, in their hobby or sport or profession or whatever it is. Uh, like reading the story of you starting at the age of nine in the book and, you know, using... I think it's melted christening candles that you robbed from the, the family shop to, to wax the surfboards. Like that's that's a, an incredible way to start, but you have to start somewhere. I mean, we're walking around Dublin today, and there's surf shops and there's Patagonia store around the corner, but there was nothing like that in the cities or you know, especially on the coast when I grew up. So you had to be inventive. Uh, so we used christening candles robbed from mom's shop, marigold gloves over our school gloves. You know, cobbled together bits of wetsuits. I used to wear Dunstore sizzlers and tracksuit bottoms on with a top, and so it was horrendous. But we didn't really realize it then. You know, that's just the way it was for yeah. us. When you look back now, 
you know, everything's easy in hindsight, but it was. It was hardcore and it was definitely very inventive. And, and uh, yeah, I couldn't imagine doing it now, though. I can imagine. <laughs> like, it, it takes its toll on the body, I'd imagine, over a certain number of years. Like, it, it was great, like, reading as well when you, when you talked about always being a beach boy from, from a young age and you were talking about, uh, I'd be there in winter and summer, in and out of the water, building sandcastles, fishing, swimming, body surfing, playing in rock pools. Yeah. And then your older brothers and sisters, obviously, as well, uh, had a part in that. But, there is something beautiful about that. Like you're obviously from a seaside town anyway, but that love of the beach and the sea has to be ingrained in you from a young age in order to probably delve into the, the world of surfing anyway. Yeah, I said it to someone yesterday where I grew up, obviously 50% of your hinterland is the ocean, so we're the sea. And if you don't engage with it, whether it's walking on the beach or you know collecting shells or surfing or swimming, that's closed off to you. So we were very much a family that faced the sea. And I just loved everything about it, rummaging around in rock pools and you know, swimming and then body surfing and bodyboarding and then surfing. And so we were a family that was engaged in that. And, you know, it, it was either that or you didn't engage with it at all in Bundorn. So, you know, I was lucky where I grew up and the family I grew up in. We were a really good family and parents were encouraging. So I, uh, I was very lucky in that respect. Is it something like we talk about risk? Um and I guess risk is all is always relative. Like you're obviously a strong swimmer, you're you're used to the currents and and the size of the waves. Is there a, a thing? And you you talk about it in the book as well. And, and your young family, you have a young family, and you have kids and a wife, of course, as well. Does that does that life altering moment when you start having kids change your perception of of what you do, or, or is it kind of just that it clicks you into gear and makes you more more I, I guess aware of safety? I probably you know sound very self serving and a bit dramatic, but yeah, when my daughter Ella was born. 10 years ago it did change it clicked something in my in my brain my DNA or whatever changed but at the time I you know I was in my late 30s then late 40s now I had achieved a lot I achieved stuff beyond my ability really and beyond my wildest dreams you know we'd surfed the biggest waves in Europe I'd sponsored surfed and really good in Europeans and travelled and got lots of accolades and I just thought you know what those are really good innings I've had in surfing in the last 30 years I'm just going to hang my hat on it now because I had a fantastic year and just the desire wasn't there anymore. I didn't want to. I just had no desire to go out into big pounding waves that would endanger me not being able to be with my daughter Ellen and my son Kai. So it sounds dramatic, but it's it's absolutely true. Mm. Yeah, I just something switched off in me that day when Ella was born in Sligo General Hospital and it never really has switched on again. There was a great, there's a great section in the book I want to just touch on here that where you talk about the, you know, how all-consuming the the surfing world is, and it perfectly kind of encapsulates, I guess, how all-consuming it has to be in order to be as good as it is. So you say in the, on page ninety-seven here in the book, um, surfing really started to dominate every aspect of my life: my physical shape, my desire, my mental attitude, and financial thinking. It's a sport that makes you single-minded, verging on the obsessive, which leads you down a road of insatiable greed with your free time. It's it's a lovely way of of describing it and, and talking about how, you know, I guess, verbalizing how much uh, an obsession and a hobby like that takes over your life. Yeah, it does. And I've been lucky enough to meet lots of sports people, you know, football and rugby over the years, professional in Ireland and overseas. And you know, a lot of them have that similar story. But with me, it was surfing didn't come naturally to me. I love to see, but I wasn't naturally good at it. Mm. So I really had to work at it. And I'm I'm stubborn and I'm driven when I want to be. So I just spent thousands of hours you know 12 hours a day in the water you know until my mom would come down or send one of my siblings down to drag me out and I'd have you know be dehydrated and sick the next day but I think it takes that to excel at a sport if you want to and I I just had a bee in my bonnet about it from a very young age I just wanted to be better I would borrow off other people 
you know, what they were doing and I kind of built a scrapbook of my own surfing. But yeah, it, it, it is, you become very single-minded and very selfish with your time mm-hmm. and everything else, you know, obviously having kids later on, that changes. But yeah, for a chunk of my life, it was all about surfing. I probably wasn't the nicest person to hang out with that much. And, you know, surfing came before anything really. But that's what you have to do if you want to, if you want to, especially in Ireland, like if you wanted to open those doors to the international scene, which are kind of open now, but we were the first you know, to, to push through that. Um, and that's what it took and that's what I did. It's funny, I, I, pro- I usually get slagged for, for bringing every conversation back to snooker in some way, shape or form, but <laughs> I think back to a story of um, Stephen Hendry, the great seven-time world champion, yeah. talking about the importance of the queue, the snooker queue. And I think one time he was travelling on, on a flight and the queue was broken in half through security and uh, he didn't play the same for, for quite some time. Like looking through the, the photos in the middle of the book and all the different surfboards you've had over the, over the years, just how important is finding that that board that 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 well becomes a, almost an extension of yourself right it's absolutely important it took me a long time to work that out because there's a lot of idiosyncrasies in board design and millimeters make a difference in it but yeah I, eventually i found you know some good good board shapers in california and on the hawaiian islands and and within europe and you do have your favorite surfboards i had a, a blue surfboard in the, in the mid 90s that i loved the hawaiian island creations it was a magic surfboard and I eventually broke it and I was never able to replicate that surfboard again. You just, you cannot get it. But you will, maybe every 20 surfboards I'd, I'd find that magic one. But it's become quite systematic now with the computer technology and the way um, it's made by machines more than anything else now, like like the Terminator surfboards. <laughs> but um, you can get replication in surfboards a lot easier now. So, you know, I've kind of found my, my magic boards at the moment, but then I'm not the surfer I once was, so I'm using easier ones. Yeah, Middle-aged yeah. surfboards, shall we say. <laughs> I'd say you're still not bad on the board. Yeah. Um, like, I guess one aspect of it as well is it, is it allows you to travel a lifestyle like that. You're obviously all going all over the world. Like, and it strikes me when you're in places like California and Hawaii um, and even other places around the coast of Ireland. I know Mullochmore was a place special in, in your heart for pioneering that. That place is a, a surfing mecca. But and you use the word Eden on the front as well. Like, where for you is surfing Mecca and surfing paradise? Well, for it? me, it's the west coast of Ireland. When you, and especially focused on the northwest, you, you know, if you're surfing at a certain stage, you don't care about weather or temperature. It's all about the waves. Mm. So as lovely as it is, is to surf in Barbados and you know, all these hot places, and I did touch on travel, but I've pretty much travelled it everywhere, surfed almost every wave I've ever wanted to surf, but. There's nowhere like home. There's nowhere as good as the west coast of Ireland. In my eyes, if you could just put up with a bit of harsh weather in the winter, we've got magnificent coastline, beautiful beaches, and unbelievably good surf. And it's not just me that says it. It's, you know, people like Kelly Slater who, you know, said Ireland's a cold water paradise. So, you know, I, I can say it, but I'm local. But when you hear other people say it, you think, wow, we really have something special on the west coast. It- I mentioned Mullochmore there, and most Irish people listening will know Mullochmore. A lot of them would have been to Mullochmore and seen the size of the waves there. Uh, and you, you talk in the book about how that being, you know, pioneering the big waves there as being one of, if not the most proud things you've done in your career. Uh, t- maybe talk to us about that and, and the work you did with Gabe Davis in Mullochmore and, and, and turning Mullochmore from a town into a, yeah. a place we all recognise as a Yeah, it was pivotal man. in my life, but, you know, growing up in Mullochmore, it's a beautiful town. It's in Sligo, not Donegal, so it's across <laughs> the border from us, and I must always state that. <laughs> but we knew there was a big wave out there, and we'd been looking at it, especially me, for my whole life, but no one was surfing it. And, you know, waves at a certain intensity or a certain size, you cannot physically paddle into them. So when jet ski technology came on board in the late 90s where you're you're like a water skier and you get towed into a wave that's too big to paddle into, 
which is a crazy kind of thing to think of. So we started tinkering with Mullock Moor and we were really the first out there. There wasn't many, there was only one or two crews in Europe, so we were the first out there and we just worked it out. It was trial and error, mm-hmm. you know, loads of bad days, loads of hammerings and then eventually you get your good waves and you build it up and you surf it at 10 foot and 20 foot and 25 foot and 30 foot and eventually up to 50 feet. But now it's, you know, it's so well established, it's rolls off the tongue of nearly every surfer in the world knows Mullock Moor. But when we used to go out, there was just sheep and seagulls watching us now there's thousands of people go out to watch but I like that that's progress and I'm glad we pioneered it because I'll always have that forever you know yeah of course like you you, you touch on the book as well about uh, on OCD and you touch on on burnout and burnout's a thing that that's come up in in this studio different times with different sports people who just reach the end of their tether with their with their sport or they just move on to different things but it but it's a serious it's a serious issue, you know, for for all sports people and with sports psychology, as serious as it is now and rightfully so, it's becoming maybe something that, that can be managed. But burnout is is something yeah. that, that impacted you as well. It was burnout and mental health, you know, was I def- definitely suffered from it. It was, you know, self-inflicted. I had a lot of anxiety and, you know, just striving all the time and pushing, pushing, pushing. I mean, now it's well recognised. Luckily, I had a good family and, you know, worked it out eventually. But yeah, I used to burn out. I just wanted everything to to be the maximum be the best I could at everything which you're never going to be so you know I would be a contest and surfing big waves and trying to improve myself as a professional surfer because I was the first one in Ireland to sign a pro deal and especially after the world championships in California where I had a double whammy last I came back and I just didn't want anything to do with surfing for a few months I played indoor football and watched rugby on TV and totally disconnected. And that was refreshing as well. And you just have to surround yourself with good people. I mean, there's a lot more awareness of it now, but certainly, yeah, I, you know, there's times in my life it was a mess. You know, luckily I didn't have that desire to turn to a vice. I just would work it out myself. Um, so I suppose I, n- I never had to go down that road, but absolutely um, you get burned out, even in something as gloriously passive and beautiful as surfing and you're immersed in, in the wilds and, you know, the ocean, but, you know, you can burn out on almost anything if you, you push it too much. And that's what I did in surfing at certain times. Yeah. I, I just before we finish, uh, Richie, just wanted to touch on, I suppose, the the increased interest. Uh, that's what I gauge anyway in, in, in surfing in Ireland. Um, and I know the, the infrastructure in the country is important in that regard. Um, I guess surfboard technology and, and I think you touch on wetsuit technology and that sort of thing, getting people involved. But is that something you've 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 noticed at a tangible increase in, in Irish people especially being interested in surfing? Absolutely. I mean it's very hard to gauge for me now. It used to be very centred on, on, you know, Bundorn and Lahinch and Tremor and Port Rush and all those towns, Strand Hill. Now it's widespread. You'll see surfboards on every road in Ireland and all around the place. But it is it that, that kind of space age technology and pricing has gone down in wetsuits and surfboards availability and just knowledge. Irish people are facing the sea a lot more. We used to face away from it a lot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Irish people are engaged with the sea. You can see, especially over COVID, a lot of people got into sea swimming and that all lends itself to engagement with the sea and a lot of people are surfing and that's what I love. But yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's getting busier and, you know, people are doing it a lot more every year. So. Hopefully that continues. Long may continue for sure. Where can people get their hands on a copy of the book, Richie? I think Eason's and all good bookstores, uh, Hodges and Figgis. It's been uh, Dubray's. So I think it's in, in all good bookstores nationwide at the moment. Brilliant. Surfing royalty, I think, uh, <laughs> is, is the term for you, Richie. We'll have, to, we'll have to get you to sign a copy of the book as Thank well. Thank you very much. But uh, Richie Fitzgerald, thanks for coming in Thank this you. Morning. My pleasure. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.